I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as aliens, werewolves, franchises, and screenwriters' bodies of work. And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers. I have never crammed this hard for an episode. I mean, I barely had time to get ready for this thing. Uh, I'm glad you did because I have never been prepared to phone it in like I'm going to on this one. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ. I mean, I barely got the last episode edited before hitting the road to go to Disney World. And then I came back and had like a day to write this one. So we'll see how it goes. But here we are on March the 15th, 2021, recording episode 56 on screenwriter Kevin Williamson. Yep, yep. I had to hastily throw the news together because I was living in the bubble known as Disney World for a week. So I didn't know anything that was happening. (laughs) It's kind of like last year when I went to Disney World and I came back, turned on the news and saw that the COVID virus had hit the United States of America. <laughs> the world shut down three days later. Like, huh, should have just stayed in Disney. Exactly. Luckily, nothing that tragic happened this time. But I flipped through some horror sites, and I managed to find a few things of note that I thought was kind of interesting. One, there's a Goosebumps live-action TV show in the works. I had no clue. Sweet. They just found a director slash showrunner. They didn't say who it was, but I love those books as a kid, so that'll be fun. I think they're supposed to be the Fear Street saga from R.L. Stein is being talked about as a movie or movie series. I'd have to cite that, but uh, I was that weirdo boy that read that shit when he was a kid. <laughs> Anyways. I saw that A Quiet Place 2 got bumped from coming out September this year to now May, so that's cool because we don't get very many movies out right now, so oh, fuck yeah. the sooner the better on a horror movie I'd like to see. Yeah, yeah. And I saw that Kurt Sutter, who's famous for Sons of Anarchy, has a show coming out called The Beast on Netflix, and he partnered with Blumhouse to make it, and it's basically about an 18th century English village being besieged by a monster. So I don't know if it's like a werewolf or what, but it could be cool. Okay. Sounds interesting. <laughs> I saw that Shudder has a movie coming out next month called The Banishing, and it's about the most haunted house in all of England. The trailer looked kind of cool. It really did give that Haunting of Hill House kind of vibe. Is this supposed to be like based on a, a true story or a true place or... To my understanding, yes, but I don't know that much about it, but it's definitely worth taking a look at the trailer. I believe on the last episode, I talked about the Netflix show, The Irregulars, which is a group of people hunting down supernatural things, and they're like working with or alongside Sherlock Holmes and Watson, and the trailer at that time was kind of like a teaser trailer. They released a full trailer, and it looks pretty fucking cool, so I'm excited to see that one and hope it doesn't suck. (laughs) And for anyone looking for new movies to watch, I saw that there's a werewolf revenge movie coming out tomorrow called I Am Lisa. It comes out on the 16th, and it looked like it might be pretty good. But you never know with werewolf movies. It's like a crapshoot. So Yeah. And the last interesting thing I saw, and I'm going to have to go find these as soon as they hit the shelves, is apparently Walmart is going to be carrying alien franchise Easter eggs. And it's a carton of Easter eggs, and they look, they're painted like Easter eggs. And when you pop them open, they have xenomorphs in them, and <laughs> they have the face huggers and all sorts of stuff. Oh, sweet. We've got, uh, we've got <laughs> one that's just a regular carton of eggs with the, the xenomorphs in them, but they're not themed to Easter. That's funny as shit. And they're only going to be at Walmart. It's so random. <laughs> Josh actually has some news. Okay. 
Halloween Horror Nights 30 officially fucking announced. I guess it's Halloween Horror Nights 30 part fucking do because uh, they're just calling it 30 still and just pretending what they tried last year didn't happen. The Beetlejuice house has already been announced as staying from last year and the first confirmed house. So fuck yeah. Let's uh everybody keep moseying along about how we've been doing so I can get my fucking vacation in this year. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had that in the notes and I deleted them because I knew you'd bring it up. <laughs> it's the only thing I ever talk about. <laughs> as far as announcements go, um, we don't really have any because we rushed one episode and now we're rushing into a next one due to my vacation. So <laughs> we'll save that for the next episode, maybe. As far as updates and corrections go, I only caught a couple of things I hastily edited the previous episode. You said you really liked the director of photography on Victor Crowley, and you couldn't remember his name and felt bad. And I notated it for you, and it's Jan Michael Lasada. And he's been cinematographer on quite a, a few things, and he's directed a couple of things. So there you go. Now you know his name. Yeah, that guy. He was cool. <laughs> <laughs> And the only other thing that I wanted to add was I forgot to mention something that I had written down, and it was how Andrew was a suspect of the murders, and that was brought up a couple of times in the Victor Crowley movie. Yeah. And the reason why was because his DNA was found on two of the victims. Yeah. And I don't think it's because he's a paramedic. I think that was another Sean Justin joke. Oh, Okay. Kind of like when the guy told him there was a couple of bodies that looked just like him. I'm assuming the DNA was on there because they were him. Okay. That would work as a tongue in cheek joke. So I could see that. Yeah. It was a funny enough gag that I wanted to mention it and I felt really bad that I left it out. So <laughs> as far as what we watched since the last episode, we recorded and then I spent two days editing that episode and then started packing for Disney world. But in that time I saw the series or season finale of WandaVision. It was awesome. They brought the dark hold into the story, which is kind of like the, the book of the dead in a way for Marvel comics. So we can okay. see that going down that dark path for the Sam Raimi, Dr. Strange movie. And then I saw, you know, a lot of Disney world for several days <laughs> And on the night that I came back, my buddy David picked me up at the airport and we grabbed some beers and we were going to watch some horror movies. And I found out that he had never seen the Lost Boys. Oh, shit. So I broke out the Lost Boys. We watched it. He loved it. And then that made us go into Near Dark, which he had also never seen. Oh, damn. So, yeah. So that was a lot of fun because I like showing great movies and classic movies to people that never seen them before. And he's a big horror fan and hadn't seen those somehow. So even though obviously I'd seen them before and we've even covered those on the show, that was fun to watch with somebody who had never seen them. And then that made me go into the next night wanting to watch the forsaken, which I hadn't seen in a while. And I like that movie. It, it's been a while since I've seen it. That's a good vampire movie. How'd that hold up? It held up pretty damn well. I actually liked it more than I remembered liking it. So, okay. Cause I know I've seen it, but I barely remember it. All you got to do is remember that the lead singer from that thing you do oh, is yeah. an ancient vampire. <laughs> and it has like two guys from the original Final Destination in the movie together. <laughs> I'm going to have to watch this again. And it's made by the same guy that wrote and directed The Covenant. Okay. Man, that movie was almost good. See, I like it in my memory. And I guess I'll save that for a witch episode. <laughs> and then other than that, I watched the two movies for this episode three times each. And then two and a half hours ago, I sat down and watched The Wolf of Snow Hollow. I enjoyed that movie rather thoroughly, even though it seems to either be loved or shit on greatly on the internet. 
Yeah, it did not go where I thought it was going to go. Certain scenes and certain events that come out of nowhere that are fucking awesome. Yeah, I really like Jim Cummings after seeing that. I haven't seen any of his previous movies, and he's the the star of the film as well. He was the writer and director. Oh, okay. And he's made a couple other movies. Yeah, yeah. But I could tell that that was definitely a movie that you probably want to watch two or three times because I caught a lot of stuff after seeing the, the ending that I realized was peppered through the movie in a very smart way. Yeah, I could see that. But that's it for what I watched. What have you seen? Not much, but uh, here we go. We watched this movie called House of Fears. I think it's from like 2005 and uh, it's God awful, but it's got Corey English from Holliston <laughs> in it. So we gave it a shot and there's, it's terrible. Don't anybody watch it. Yeah, that's what I thought about Holliston as well. <laughs> no, no, no. Holliston's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just messing with you. We binged bonding on uh, Netflix and we thought the comedy was going to be more absurd and it wasn't. And I guess it's all right, but it's, you know, typical comedy fashion. It starts off funny and then gets real serious by the end. Oh yeah. Which kind of kills it, but it, it's an all right show. If you're, uh, if you're, if you're curious about kink and you like comedies, it's a little bit in there for everybody. There's a supporting guy. That's the main guy's roommate. That's the funniest fucking thing in the show. And you get to see more of him okay. as time goes on. Um, it's just off the wall. There's nothing special about it, but it, it was a good time suck. But this one, okay. Here comes hell. Okay. We saw it on, I'm pretty sure it was on Netflix and it, we watched the trailer for it. It's in four, three, it's black and white and it looks cheesy and terrible in all the best ways. So, okay. We, so after that trailer, we watch it and it is like house on haunted Hill meets night of the demons meets evil dead Two with Peter Jackson on set for a couple of days. Sign me the fuck up. Yeah. It's this, it's a uh, trash house pictures. It's their first film. It may have even been a Kickstarter. I haven't had time to dig into it. I just went nuts on the internet to try to find it on DVD immediately, which I did. When you say DVD, do you mean DVD or Blu-ray? No, there was no Blu-ray release for this film yet. Okay, okay. <laughs> but it's, it's got some stuff in it that falls apart towards the end, but it doesn't matter. There's, if you are a fan of anything that I named, it was so fun and so refreshing. You just got to, you got to give it the first 20 minutes to get into it. And that's all I've watched. You saying Netflix made me think about the amount of true crime docs that I've tried to binge in the past few days. And uh, yeah, I've probably watched an unhealthy amount of those in the past <laughs> two days also. Yeah. You sound like my wife. Hey man, they're fun to watch. <laughs> But anyways, in this episode, we're going to try something a little different. We're going to cover a screenplay writer instead of a director. And when we cover a category, it's pretty cut and dry, right? On picking films. Yeah. When we pick a franchise, you know exactly what you're going to get. Easy. However, when you cover a screenplay writer, you get such a mixed bag to choose from, right? Oh, yeah. We noticed that most big horror directors write their own films, right? Like we mentioned that regularly on the show. Yeah. And when you do try to pay attention to the writers, you usually see story by here, screenplay there, and there's like four or five people, right? So it's it's not as easy to to pick out a style like it is with a director. Yeah. And the people are usually just not as well known. Like they might do one horror movie here and then a bunch of, you know, dramas over there. You just never know. The exception to this, I would say, is Kevin Williamson. I would say that he's possibly the most famous horror screenplay writer that is not a director that's around, and he has a pretty interesting story to tell, and he's left a mark along the way. I don't think anyone could argue that. Absolutely. 
So I wanted to go into a little bit of backstory about the guy and then go into his body of work before we cover the films. He was born in Newburn, North Carolina in 1965, but he grew up in a nearby town called Oriental, North Carolina. And his mother was a writer, I believe, and his father was a fisherman. And the town in I Know What You Did Last Summer is 100% based off of Oriental. Nice. They had the queen. They had the parades. It was a fishing town. Everything. So he based the whole setting off of the town he grew up in, even though he wrote the story off of a book. The book is very little what actually went into that movie. It was just more of like the initial idea. And then he put a spin on it. Okay. But as a child, he moved to Texas and he grew up there for a while before moving back to Oriental for his high school years. And he got a love of film, especially Spielberg movies, right? Like it made him want to be a filmmaker and go to film school. And when he graduated high school, he decided to apply for NYU for the film program and he was accepted, but he couldn't afford to go. So he ended up going to East Carolina University where he got a bachelor's in theater arts. He then moved to New York City to pursue an acting career and he got a job on a soap opera. I don't remember which one, but he was on a soap opera for a little while and he wasn't really liking that. So he moved to LA so he could try to get more roles and he landed multiple small roles in films and shows. And while doing that, he took a screenwriting class at UCLA and this is where he wrote his first script killing Mrs. Tingle, yeah, which yeah. you probably know as teaching Mrs. Tingle, but down the road, they changed the name because of Columbine. There's so many times that we have talked about a movie <laughs> on the show and Columbine changed something and <laughs> it happened yet again here. But the script was bought by Indiescope in 1995 and was put on a shelf and sat there for a little while. And Kevin wanted work and he was going to need to expand his body of work because he only had this one little piece of writing and it was shelved somewhere, right? So he was watching TV and he saw a special on a serial killer in Gainesville, Florida, and it inspired him to write his script, Scary Movie, which was going to be a meta horror film. And he wrote a 20, 22, somewhere in there, 20 something page outline of this film and ran up to the desert for three days. I think, I mean, I'm assuming there was a hotel involved unless he was in a uh, RV like uh, Breaking Bad, making meth, right? Like, I don't think it was one of those. I'm pretty sure it was a hotel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, he, but I saw an interview. He said he ran off to the desert, and he wrote the entire screenplay in three days. And yeah. people ask him, how did he make such a detailed screenplay in three days? And he said, well, normally an outline's like, I don't know, eight pages. And I had a 20-something page outline de detailing this. And that helped it go a long way. Yeah, that and peyote. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but he finished the script, and that script would, of course, become Scream. And Miramax bought that script from them for their Dimension films in 95, and Wes Craven was attached to direct, as we all know. And I guess you could say the rest was history from there, because this film not only saved the slasher subgenre, but rejuvenated the horror genre at that time as well, which was in a huge rut. Yep. His next film was I Know What You Did Last Summer, which was also very well received. And Columbia Pictures capitalized on having Kevin Williamson as the creator and screenplay writer by putting from the creator of Scream on all the posters and ads, which they were sued for saying by Miramax. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Miramax is like, no, we're going to pull that same trick later. <laughs> exactly. This eventually got him the opportunity to make teaching Mrs. Tingle because he was famous now and they wanted to use his first screenplay. And he actually directed that film. That was his directorial debut and it bombed. 
Oh shit. I didn't realize he directed it. Yep. And I've only seen it once. I actually watched it with you at your stepmom's condo. Oh, wow. I remember watching it. Yeah. yeah, yeah a long time ago. That means I might've been sober. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a long time ago. Jeez. But throughout all this, he carried on the Scream series, writing all the way up to the fourth installment, I believe, right? Yeah, he was, what got, well, that gets off into a whole other story where he was like almost fired and somebody else did a lot of writing. But yeah, he stayed with the Scream franchise. He totally wrote two. I think it was three, maybe, that they tried to get somebody else to do it and he ended up having to fix it in the end anyways. Yes, that sounds about right. And if you're curious about that, just go back and listen to the Scream episodes, <laughs> because I'm sure we said it on there somewhere. Yeah, one of us back then knew what we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but this also led to him writing The Faculty and Cursed, which we're going to cover later. But outside of film, Kevin also had a very successful television career. And if it wasn't for Scream, I would say a more successful television career. Yeah. But just like his films, he had hits and misses and a few flops with his television shows. because. All the shows that he wrote for, he was also the creator of the show. Okay. And it really seems like Kevin works at extreme ends of the spectrum as far as good versus bad. <laughs> like his shit's either amazing and like genre changing or hated and canceled in the season. So kind of like Wes Craven. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I kind of made a, a quick and dirty list of his movies and TV shows just so we can see what he was doing when. Okay. All right. So as far as movies go, in 96, he did Scream. In 97, he did I Know What You Did Last Summer. In 97, he also did Scream 2. In 98, he did The Faculty. In 99, he did Teaching Mrs. Tingle. And in 2000, he did Scream 3. Damn. In 2005, he did Cursed. In 2011, he did Scream 4. And in 22, he has the new Scream movie coming out just called Scream, where he is a producer, and he originally told them no on that. He wanted, like, a new, younger crew of people to take over, and he saw what they were doing with it, and he's like, no, no, I'll come in and produce. This is going to be great. Oh, wow. As far as TV, I, I probably should have done this in chronological order, but you're going to be able to tell, like, how crazy these years were. <laughs> In 1999, he had a show called Wasteland that he created and wrote, got canceled after one season. In 98, he made Dawson's Creek, which ran until 2003. And that was supposed to be more like um, about his life growing up in Oriental, and he turned that into Dawson's Creek, right? Yeah. And he had a show in 02 called Glory Days, canceled after one season. Hidden Palms in 07, canceled after one season. <laughs> Then he created The Following with Kevin Bacon. It ran from 2013 to 2015. And I like that show. The second season kind of went off the rails, but it ended up getting canceled after that. The first season was amazing, though. And then I found out about this show he wrote that ran for two seasons called Stalker. And I think I'm going to track this one down and watch it over the next couple of weeks. It sounded kind of interesting. Huh. But it's about a special like crime unit in the L.A. Police Department hunting down stalkers. So I could see that being dark. And from 2009 to 2017, he had The Vampire Diaries, right? Which I love that show. I've talked about it on here before. Watch it from beginning to end and all the spinoffs thus far. <laughs> but he created that show. It was from a novel series, but it went its own way. But he created that show, and I believe he wrote a good part of the first season. I'd have to double check. And then he did Time After Time in 2017. And most recently, he's done Tell Me a Story on CW, which has ran from 2018 to 2020, which is a dark, modern retelling of different fairy tales for each episode. And I've been meaning to watch that one. Oh, that sounds hella interesting. 
And he has some actors in it that were in like the Vampire Diaries and whatnot that I like. So it, it would be really cool to see. I hear they get pretty fucking dark, but it just takes an old fairy tale, puts it in a modern setting, puts a horror spin on it and goes with it for an hour. Fuck yeah. But that's it for backstory that I got on the guy. It's not as easy to find information on a screenplay writer as a director, but his body of work has spanned from 99 until now, and he's constantly been working. And I feel like that kind of speaks volumes for itself because there's some heavy hitters in there as far as movies and TV shows. Yeah, and it's weird because he's like... I don't know the, the scream guy, the scream guy, but a lot of people are like Wes Craven, the scream guy. And, uh, I mean, that's the biggest thing that I know him for, you know, with that. And, uh, I know what you did last summer, but it's like, he's been fairly consistent in our adult lives making genre shit. And he's always got work in TV going on the side. And, uh, I don't know. I digging into him a little bit and, and reading and watching some interviews. Um, I wonder what else he's got in him that we haven't even gotten yet. You know what I mean? Right. I'm getting, I'm getting the cart in front of the horse as far as how we usually break this shit down on the show though. But it's like, he's, I feel like there's some people that are really into movies that you could say his name and they'd be like, who? Yeah. <laughs> it's so weird. It's also interesting. Like I have seen him say he's not a huge horror fan. But he likes horror. It just has to be like a certain way and, and pretty detailed. And he said his favorite horror movie of all time is Halloween. So he has great taste. <laughs> and his favorite horror director is James Wan. Oh, yeah. I, I saw that in an interview. He's like, have you seen The Conjuring? <laughs> yeah, he starts going through a lot of his body of work. And, and he said it's just his writing and his directing. And then, you know, he gets praised for his cinematography a lot and his, his framing and setup of films. And he loves the whole package of James Wan making horror films. And he's a big Blumhouse fan. And he really likes like the happy death day movie and whatnot. Like he likes those horror comedies. And what I noticed from that, those are all heavily character driven films, usually coming from James Wan and happy death day and stuff like that. And all of his work, I will say, it's very character driven, which is a big thing for me. I always like that. Like his movies, especially the one I'm about to get into, it's one of the few movies that I remember every character's name. Yeah. He's not big on throwaway or at least stuff that he's written. He's not big on throwaway characters. So it does give you more of an ensemble type setup. And right. to go back a little bit, I, I hope, I hope in those interviews that he's name dropping in towards something that we'd get in the future. Cause like something written by him and directed by James Wan, I'd be all over that. <laughs> I would be all over that. I think it would team up perfectly with James Wan. Cause James Wan usually has memorable characters in his films as well. Yeah. Their styles are probably mesh really well. Yay. Future horror. <laughs> but unless you have anything to add to the backstory, I guess it's time to dive into the films. Well, I do want to say one more quick thing. That's one of those funny things that we always run across was a story about uh, him as a kid. And when he very first got the idea of making movies, I want to say it was after seeing Jaws and grabbing the family camera and pulling his friends together to uh, make a movie about a fisherman 
a killer fisherman. And uh, <laughs> at one point in high school, and this may have been when the, the killer fisherman thing happened, he joined the AV club just to be able to steal equipment. <laughs> nice. I didn't even find that in my research. Yeah, he would he would steal the equipment so he could shoot shorts. So it's another one of those stories of uh, somebody at a young age of trying, and he was trying with writing, trying with acting. He was in there at every angle to somehow tell stories. And uh, he's one of the guys that, that made it and uh, didn't come out on somebody else's coattails, I don't think, which I'm, I'm going off into left field because we're not talking about these movies right now. But the whole scream thing and going back to Wes Craven and all those interviews with Wes Craven where he's like, you know, Kevin Williamson wrote a great fucking script. Like everybody's got to right. get this in their head. I didn't write this movie. And uh, I think people should really, really, you know, keep that in mind when thinking about this man. Because Wes is one of the directors that most of his movies were written by him, right? Yes. Yeah. But anyways, I guess we'll dive off into the films and I'm going to start us off with 1998's The Faculty, which is basically a mesh of The Breakfast Club with Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Um, and blow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think it's more of a crystal meth, but we'll get to that. <laughs> True. And if you haven't seen this film, watch it. It's a classic. I will call it a classic. Somebody's probably going to send me hate mail for that, but it did its own thing and it was really fun. And this movie was directed by Robert Rodriguez. Hey, who has came up many times on the show, especially recently. El Mariachi, Desperado, From Dust Till Dawn, Sin City, Planet Terror, and more recently, like the Spy Kids and Lava Girl and Shark Boy <laughs> movies, right? But you can tell it's a Rodriguez movie when you watch it. Yeah. And written by Kevin Williamson, of course. There's a couple other writers that are credited with the story by, but he did the whole screenplay. So they came up with the idea. And he fleshed out the screenplay, but the idea is honestly a ripoff of Invasion of the Body Snatchers for the most part. So you can only give them so much credit. Yeah. Now, did you read about the whole advertising campaign thing with the the two original writers? No. Okay. Because that, that's what I was making a joke about earlier. So it was two other writers that started it, but Williamson did rewrite it. And they have went on record and said, you know, he changed a lot of stuff. It really is his movie. But Miramax actually paid them hush money. Oh, I, I think it was 50 grand to let them use written by Kevin Williamson, the writer of Scream. Okay. Okay. <laughs> like, a, you know, like one of those advertising type things. And uh, for them to say, you know, we won't raise a sink about it. But, it, but the whole thing was cool. And it's, it's actually called a type of clause. I never knew any of this shit until do, doing research <laughs> for this episode. And uh, it happens because me and you have talked about it before where like something goes into script Dr. Hell and there's all kinds of shit that's written by people that you don't even know they wrote it. And it's, you know, whoever right. gets the final word. But they did come out and say that, you know, he retooled it enough that it was his picture, which I just think is really funny when you went back to the the whoever being sued for using that to try to advertise their shit. Right. And this movie, just like anything else he, he's made, is very character driven. And I think they picked the perfect cast to play every character. I can't picture anybody being anybody else. I mean, yeah, maybe some of the teachers, but those were classic throwbacks to have somebody in there or other people Rodriguez had worked with. Yeah. But our primary cast, our primary group of kids, we have Josh Hartnett as Zeke. This is his second film after Halloween H2O. 
And he was also in Lucky Number Eleven, Sin City, Thirty Days a Night, Black Dahlia, the original Penny Dreadful series. And I love this guy. I, I like all of his darker horror shit that he's done. I think he's a good actor. They tried to typecast him as like a uh, heartthrob, and he hated that. That's why I always fucked his hair up. Yeah, in his first few movies, because he wanted to just look like a normal dude and be known for his acting. And I feel like he didn't really get to show that until Lucky Number Eleven. That's when he saw how good of an actor the guy was. But you see a lot of dark character traits in this movie. <laughs> with oh him. yeah, and I, I think he he did it pretty well. We have Elijah Wood as Casey, who's the nerdy Stephen King freak, as he's called in the movie. <laughs> And, of course, he's most famous for being Frodo in the Lord of the Ring trilogy. And I remember him from Radio Flyer when I was a kid. And oh, yeah. Let's see. Yeah. And he was in Sin City as well. Yeah. And he had his show Wilfred. And he was the maniac in the Maniac remake. Yeah. He also runs his own horror company now producing horror films. He's a huge horror fan. So Who would have thunk it? We will see a lot of work from him soon, I'm sure. He was even on um, History of Horror. They have him on there doing, you know, providing stuff. opinions and history and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> we have Jordana Brewster in the movie as Delilah, which she is probably most famously known for being in the Fast and the Furious franchise because she's in most of those. As far as I remember, I haven't seen them all, but yeah. she's in a bunch of them. And she was in Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the beginning. And I remember from Chuck, one of my favorite TV shows of all time, and she was most recently in Random Acts of Violence, which was a fun slasher flick. Yeah, yeah. We have Clea Duvall as Stokely, and she's been in a bunch of shit, but as far as related to this podcast, I would say Ghost of Mars, The Grudge, Identity, Carnival. She was in American Horror Story Asylum. I remember being like an FBI agent or something on Heroes. And I saw that she's most recently on Handmaiden's Tale, which is kind of genre-related. And she was on Veep for, like, the whole run of it, which isn't horror-related, but that was a big show and very recent. So she's still going strong. Yeah, she gets work. And we have Sean Hatosi as Stan, which I like his character in the movie, but he seems to have just done lots of TV work and, and, and random movies. Nothing really genre-related that stood out to me, but he has stayed actively working. Most recently, he was in that Animal Kingdom show I saw, but other than that, you know, a lot of stuff didn't really jump out to me. I, I know the Bosch cop show. He was on that, apparently, but oh, okay, he's done his own thing. And then we have Laura Harris as Mary Beth. So for the third episode in a row, I have to say Mary Beth a bunch of times. And <laughs> she has had lots of television credits, lots of voice actor credits, but... I know her from Dead Like Me because I love that show when it came out. And oh, yeah. she was a main character on 24, which I haven't watched yet, but I've been on this Kiefer Sutherland kick recently, so I'm sure I'll roll into that. <laughs> the only other character that I'm going to mention is Usher because Usher <laughs> is on all of the posters and his name's thrown all over it. And the trailer, if I remember correctly, showed all of his small scenes that are in the movie. He has a character in the movie. He does stand out a little bit. He's Stan's best friend and on the football team, but he is not a star part of the main crew in this movie. And I guess this was probably 
when he had just broke through in the music industry and was doing so well. And they got him in this movie and he's a good actor. He's good in the movie. He just didn't have a large part, but they threw him all over all the marketing materials. Like he was the star or going to be in the movie way more than he was. You know, what's fucking funny about that is when we were watching this, me and the wife were watching it and he first shows up and I'm like, Hey, who's, cause you know me, I don't remember people's names. I'm like, Hey, Hey, he's been in stuff. Who is that? And Ginger looks at me. She's like, that's Usher. I'm like, Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and as far as special effects go, we have some practical effects in this movie and a lot of early CGI work, <laughs> late nineties, digital CGI work. The practical effects are done by. K and B studios who would have figured. <laughs> so burger and Nicotero ran it and did a great job on it. They worked with Rodriguez in the past, the digital companies. I didn't list any of them. If you watch the credits, there was like eight or nine companies that did the digital effects. Oh, damn. They aged very poorly. Okay. You're right. But I will give them credit that you do see an attempt at practical with touch up in this movie in some things. Yeah. It just didn't hold up, but I like that it wasn't heavy handed. Well, there's a couple of things that are heavy handed, but we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's some cool artsy work that's done. That doesn't make any sense that I'll get into as well, <laughs> but it looked badass. The last thing I want to say about the cast before diving into the movie is that if their goal was to try to mirror the breakfast club cast, they did it spot on. <laughs> Because you have the nerd, the jock, the outcast chick. They did everybody perfectly. The uh, the cheerleader babe, you know, like it was just insane. And that was an intentional goal and, and they nailed it. <laughs> but anyways, we open up with a high school football practice that's coached by the T-1000, Robert Patrick himself. And he's pissed off, yelling at the team, cussing. And after he goes off on Stan, one of our main cast members, the team starts to leave practice and he angrily flips over a bench with shit all over it. And he starts to mess with a broken sprinkler in the ground. And while he's been over, somebody approaches him from behind and he wants to know what the hell they want. And we don't see what happens from there. Right. <laughs> we then cut to a faculty meeting and we see principal Drake telling all of the teachers that there are budget cuts this year and that none of their departments can have extra money for theater or <laughs> field trips or anything. And the teachers are angry because they're assuming the football team is still going to get all the funds and everything they want. And the principal lets them know that, yes, yes, the football team is because this is a football town and that's what all the board members and parents want. Yeah. That's uh, that, that, that you're the winner. The winners get the fucking rewards, <laughs> <laughs> but they all leave and start to head for the parking lot. And principal Drake realizes that she forgot her keys and they're in her office and she heads back in. She's startled by Coach Furlong. His name is Coach Edward Furlong in the movie, by the way. <laughs> nice TT reference with him there. And he's acting very odd, and he's telling her she's very pretty, and he keeps asking her for a pencil, and she just thinks he's hammered, right? Yeah. He starts to get a bit grabby with her, and then he stabs her in the hand with a pencil. I've always wanted to do that. She then claws his face with a beer bottle opener she has in her key ring and runs off to the school into a science lab to a locked window, and he comes charging in full speed, blowing his whistle in his mouth while he's running. Some people think it's funny. I think it's really creepy. <laughs> I go back. It is definitely unsettling. <laughs> you can tell it's off. <laughs> he's definitely playing the same character as the T-1000, though. <laughs> he's a man on a mission. 
Exactly. But she manages to smash him in the head with something and get out into the hallways and run to the doors to leave. The doors are now chained shut. And she sees Mrs. Olsen on the other side, who was Carrie's mother in the original Carrie film. Oh. There's a little bit of cat and mouse being played with her getting the keys, but she ends up outside with Miss Olsen and trying to hold the door shut as the coach tries to smash through. She calls him a prick and she turns around to see a stoned face. Mrs. Olsen staring at her with a pair of scissors and Mrs. Olsen then viciously stabs her to death into the ground. And she also says that she always wanted to do this. <laughs> they must really hate their boss title card. <laughs> I really like this opening scene and it does a very good job of being creepy and suspenseful and have a good bit of horror in there. But honestly, this is the only scene in the movie that is full on like this. Yeah, but it's still got comedy in it too. So it lets us know what kind of balance we're about to carry. It's a Kevin Williamson movie. That's what balance we get. <laughs> we're here Touché. to cover his work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we cut to the next day at Harrington High School. And we're introduced to our main cast as they arrive at school. And as each character is introduced, the frame will freeze and their name will pop up on the screen for a second. And we see Zeke hauling ass into the parking lot in his 1970 GTO. We see Casey get his nose busted by a flying elbow and then picked up and ran nuts first into a flagpole (laughs) just to let you know his position in life. And we see Stokely being the resident goth kid and Delilah is the stereotypical high school head cheerleader and stands the asshole quarterback school jock. So they have now fit neatly into their stereotypes. Yep. We see Stan approach Delilah, who is apparently his girlfriend, and he says he has a headline story for her since she's the editor of the school paper. And she blows him off and says that, you know, she's the boss on that. And she's the one with the idea. It's not him. Cause she's very sweet to him. <laughs> we also see Mary Beth arrive for her first day of school. And she asked Robert Rodriguez's sister for directions to the office. Oh, really? Yeah. The girl sitting on the ground, with all the piercings is his sister. I'm going to assume that's the crazy babysitter twins. Mom. Hey, I'll accept that it. is an <laughs> assumption, but it makes sense. <laughs> Guess it depends how many sisters he has really. But we find out that Zeke is repeating a senior year and he sells fake IDs to hide from that 70s show and another dude that looked kind of familiar and apparently sells a homemade drugs to the kids there as well. He calls it scat and it's guaranteed to jack you up. I am not snorting anything called scat. <laughs> <laughs> it is really clever, though. He has it in ink pens and you unscrew the back cap, snort it up your nose. It's kind of a neat idea. Maybe that was a thing. I don't know. I was never a druggy kid. So, no, we didn't know anything we carried around was just in baggies. So, <laughs> <laughs> but we see the faculty lounge where John Stewart is a science teacher and Selma Hayek is the school nurse. I didn't bother to write down their characters' names. I'm just going to call them who they are. I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> John Stewart was kind of odd in here, but he fit really well. He he played the role well. Selma Hayek, you could tell Rodriguez just throw it in some of his crew, right? Yeah. And Harry Knowles is actually one of the teachers in there hanging out. And he was famous for Ain't It Cool News, which was like a movie news site. The interesting thing with Harry Knowles being on here is that he went to Elijah Wood and told Elijah that he had heard through the grapevine that Peter Jackson was making a Lord of the Rings movie and hadn't found Frodo yet, and he needed to go apply for that damn job because he think he'd be the perfect Frodo. No shit. 
So that's how Elijah Wood became Frodo, apparently. Damn. Thanks, Rodriguez. <laughs> it's all because, <laughs> of, all because of the people you brought together. If you think about it, he stuck Elijah Wood and Josh Hartnett in Sin City after he made this as well. Yeah, yeah, true. Don't forget this is the movie that he was working on when he showed Josh Hartnett and Elijah Wood his script for Planet Terror that he had started. That's right. But anyways, the coach comes into the room and he's chugging water constantly. And John Stewart notices this and points it out. And he just talks about how bad it makes him want to take a piss. <laughs> we cut the stand and we see that he wants to quit playing football and just work on his academics. And Delilah's not happy with this because this messes with the high school pecking order of the head cheerleader dating the star quarterback, not the wannabe that's apparently on the yellow brick road for a brain. She's very <laughs> sweet to him, like I said before. <laughs> I do want to point out Charisma Carpenter is who they originally wanted for the role of Delilah. Oh, I could see the shit out of that. Exactly. That's why she turned it down, though. She turned it down because she's like, this is just like Cordelia on Buffy. I can't do this again. Eh, true, but I, <laughs> I would have been fine with it. I know, right? But over the next few scenes, we can see some classes and we can see that Zeke is actually very smart and he seems to have a shared crush with Famka Jansen's character, Miss Burke, I think her name is. Yeah. But she's like a really quiet, shy teacher. And we can see that Stan is actually trying to study in his classes, and he's the only one that seems to care. <laughs> we see Mary Beth outside trying to talk to Stokely, who's trying to blow her off. And Delilah interrupts him to let Mary Beth know that Stokely's a lesbian. And if she doesn't have any lesbianism in her family tree, she needs to back the fuck off. And Stokely leaves pissed. Ooh, late 90s stuff. I was going for know, a word right? there and lost it. <laughs> Fuck it. <laughs> we then cut to a lonely Casey eating lunch by himself on the bleachers. And he's walking back and he discovers a prawn, I guess I'll call it, <laughs> on the ground. And he's startled by Coach Furlong. And the coach tries to talk to him about sports. And Casey says that he does not think anyone should run unless they're being chased. And the coach likes this. <laughs> back in the school, we can see Stokely looking at a lot of the teachers and realizing that they're all acting strangely. And then she goes into science class taught by John Stewart, which is just an enigma in itself. <laughs> and we find out that she's not actually a lesbian. She just says that she's a lesbian to scare people away. And she tells all this to Mary Beth, right? Casey walks into the class and he shows the teacher the, the thing he found. And the teacher's looking at it and he thinks he discovered a new species and they need to call the university immediately. The teacher then brings Zeke in to look at the creature because he's apparently the resident genius at the school and knows more than the science teacher. And Usher accidentally knocks some water on the prawn and it comes back to life. The teacher puts it in a fish tank in the classroom and it grows out these terrible CGI red tentacles <laughs> and splits in two and bites the dumbass teacher's finger who sticks his hand in the tank to fuck with the weird creatures he found. <laughs> But we cut to the swimming pool and see the coach standing there and Stan quits the football team to him. And he's not a jerk about it to Stan, which he thinks is kind of odd. And then Stan goes into the locker room and has to defend Casey from some bullies, including Usher. And then Stan heads into the shower to take a shower. And he's approached by an elderly teacher that we saw in the opening of the film. And she's covered in boils and her hair is falling out. And she says that she can't breathe and then starts to rip her clothes off to get into the water. And then she grabs Stan and says they want to get everyone right. Like very ominous. What the fuck's happening? 
Oh, we cut to Mrs. Olson explaining to Stan and Casey that that teacher has cancer and she's going through chemo and her medicine's messing her up a bit. She says crazy stuff sometimes. And that's why she looked that way. And while she's talking, Casey's looking out the window and he sees coach Furlong just standing out in the field in front of the sprinklers getting soaked. And he's taking pictures of that. And Mrs. Olson tries to get his attention and it does like a crazy Robert Rodriguez quick cut zoom thing on the teacher with the music going like, dun, dun, dun. and it's yeah. so cheesy and awesome at the same time <laughs> out in the parking lot. We can see Zeke selling nudie tapes of Nev Campbell and Jennifer love Hewitt to some kids, which I'm assuming is a funny joke that Kevin Williamson put in there because of screaming. I know what you did last summer. And Miss Burke catches him and she tries to talk to him about it, but he offers her some laxatives to try and relax. Or maybe she'd like some cherry flavored Magnum sized condoms if she's into that. It is so weird seeing Fomke Jensen play the straight and narrow teacher, but I get it because of what her character has to do later. It doesn't seem like it should work, but I buy it. Yeah, yeah, she plays like the quiet, not sure of herself character really well. They don't have her hair done. They don't have much makeup on her. She's got glasses on. She looks real sad. And then later, you know, they, they turn it on its head and turn her into herself, basically. Right. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. They turn her into a house on Haunted Hill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, which everybody should know her from House on Haunted Hill. She's Jean Grey in the uh, Fox X-Men movies. And I always remember her from Eli Roth's Hemlock Grove, right? Like yep. she's the vampire mom on that. Yeah, she's so good at being bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, we see that school's letting out and Delilah needs a story for the school paper. So Casey's a photographer. She grabs him and she takes him into the teacher's lounge to try and find a story going through all the teacher's shit, right? They start to get a little flirty with each other. And then they're startled by Mrs. Olson and Coach Furlong coming into the lounge. So they go hide in the closet. And they overhear the teachers talking about how the other teacher's body was too old and couldn't handle it. And that the heat and the climate in the area is very bad for them. They have to stay hydrated. They also discuss how most of the faculty has already been commuted. And now it's time to move on to the students. Shit's going down. <laughs> exactly. Nurse Soma Hayek comes into the room and <laughs> basically they grab her and spit a prawn in her ear, which causes a bunch of blood to squirt out. Looks kind of badass. And Delilah and Casey get scared and jump back in the closet, accidentally knocking over the teacher's body from earlier, which is like super dehydrated out now. And obviously they hit her in there. The coach hears the sound and he goes to check out the closet. And right as he's about to open it, Casey smashes his way out with a broom, knocking him over. And they try to run out as they're grabbed by the nurse who looks like she's in pain and trauma, right? They run out into the hallway into Mrs. Drake, who's now alive very much without stab wounds on her. And another teacher, I think his name is Mr. Tate. He's in all sorts of shit, but <laughs> they tell her what's going on and they figure out that all the teachers and the principal are in on it together as the nurse comes walking out with Olsen and Furlong and they all have this stone cold stare at each other. Yeah, this is the down the hallway shot, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you definitely know at that point and you see the kids realization of how fucked they are at that point. Exactly. I think she actually says we're fucked and they take off running. <laughs> Casey ends up showing back up at the school with the police and his parents and the teachers have swapped the body in the closet for a CPR doll at this point 
to show how he was confused when he saw that. And Delilah is mysteriously absent from being here, so she can't back up anything that he says. And Principal Drake takes one of the cops into her office to call the nurse to verify that everything's okay. And she slams the door shut. You can hear some banging around in the office. And then the door opens and he comes walking out, obviously as one of them now. You know who he is? Gail Weathers' new cameraman in Scream 2. Yeah. Yeah, They either they had one hell of a quickie or uh, he's done been turned. And uh, guess what? He'd been turned. And speaking yeah, of turning yeah. with prawns, do they remind you of the little the belly button sentinel thingy in the Matrix? Oh, yeah, it really does with the, like, when the tentacles come out, right? Yeah. But at this point, Drake tries to get Casey's mom to come into the office with her. And <laughs> Casey says, yeah, I'll let you get me help to get his parents out of there, right? Yeah. So that night at Casey's house, we can see that his parents are looking for drugs in his room and ripping everything apart because they just assume he's on drugs. And his parents ground him, and he explains what he thinks is going on to them. And they're like, no, fuck this. And his dad takes his phone, his internet, by yanking the modem, the old school, you know, dial up modem, his boom box. So he won't have any music. And they even take his porno stash from under his mattress. Sorry, pal. No more flogging the bishop. That is the only time in my life. I have heard that term. <laughs> Me too. And it might be my new favorite phrase for that. <laughs> and guys, you got to remember this was 98. This was a time before the internet and porn were synonymous. Oh yeah. 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 It was still way too slow on the internet. I mean, <laughs> so I heard, <laughs> but Casey tries to sneak out a second story window and he spots Furlong <laughs> Olsen and Tate outside and he falls off as they approach him and his dad pulls him inside, but the teachers are absent now. But if you notice his mom was looking out the window the whole time, so yep. she's probably turned at this point as well, which this is my one flaw with this movie. There are people that you either assume are turned or later find out were turned and they had opportunities to take everybody out and they didn't. Yeah. Like how hard would it have been for mom to get Casey to sleep that night? Yep. Been different if you found out some people were immune or something, but that didn't happen here. But the next day Casey's dropped off at school by his father and he's approached by coach Furlong. The, the dad is, and they're talking to each other and stare at Casey oddly as he's walking away. So Either his dad's already turned or he gets turned right here in the car, which once again, why didn't mom do it? So I'm going to go with maybe he was turned already. I just don't know why they didn't get Casey already. Yeah. But he's going through the hallway trying to dodge all the teachers and he runs into Delilah who has her hair up in like a bun and has glasses on. And she says she's going incognito and that's why she's dressed in drag as she refers to it. Yeah. Cause now she's suddenly hideous. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Oh my God. But it's the, she's all that thing, right? It is. It is. It's like, <laughs> it's my hair's in a bun, I have glasses on, so I'm not super hot Jordana Brewster anymore. Like not another teen movie really nailed it on <laughs> shit <laughs> that they pulled from even in this movie. Oh, dude, what's his nuts from not another teen movie and scary movie is actually in this movie. He runs by the camera in the hallway yeah. in, in the opening. I don't remember his name. You see him in a couple of scenes getting the shit beat out of him by his girlfriend. And then later they're happy sitting arm locked. And that's how, you know, they've been taken over. Oh, hey. if you pay attention, there's lots of subtle background things with people acting a certain way. And then they're different later. And you're like, why, why are we zooming in on this? And then later you realize it so that you, you understand that people are being taken over. 
huh, I may have to give this flick a background watch. <laughs> but Delilah still thinks Casey's overreacting about all this, and she wants to go talk to Stan about it. And as they're walking through the hallway, we can see more teachers acting strangely. We can see the coffee pot not being used in the teacher's lounge at all, which me working at a school, I understand that's very odd. And <laughs> all the teachers are chugging water. Like there's giant racks of the water bottles for the cooler now and everything in the background. Yeah. And Stokely's noticing all of this as well. Right. And we see her approach Stan in a classroom and they bonded a little bit as he explains why he quit football. And it was basically about one time he studied really hard and got a D minus on the test and, and they gave him an A because he was the quarterback and he worked hard and deserved that D. And <laughs> he wants to be known for his fucking academics, goddammit. But Mr. Tate comes in the room chugging water and he tells them they have a new assignment. They're all going to work on their living family history and they need to write down the names of all of their living closest relatives so they can take everybody over, right? Yeah. We see Mary Beth approach Zeke in the hallway and he offers her some scat and she says that she's allergic to most medicines, including aspirin, and couldn't take it, right? She's straight edge. <laughs> exactly. They then formally introduce each other and... You can see that they like each other immediately and they walk off together. During all this, we can hear the principal on the intercom system calling students' names constantly into the nurse's office where they're getting ear exams from Nurse Selma Hyatt because I didn't write down her name. And this is obviously how they're turning the kid. She looks in the ear, spits a prawn in because we saw the prawn multiply when they hit water. They live in your body, you spit them out, yada, yada. That's the science, right? Yeah, yeah. Zeke starts to notice some of the kids are acting really odd and drinking lots of water. And Hyde and Pal from earlier show up to buy some more <laughs> scat from him. And all seems normal until he sells it to him. And then they ask for more. And then they ask if he has even more in his car or lockers because they want all of his stash. And he notices this is very odd. And he hides some pins in his back pocket, right? Yeah, he's a smart dude. Exactly. He's catching on. Like I said, he's the resident genius. <laughs> but at this point, Miss Burke walks up to him. And Famka Jansen has her hair done, her makeup on, she has no glasses, and she's dressed hot. And she's smacking them and giving them shit and going off on them. And she's no longer the quiet, shy teacher. And this really gets to Zeke. She got some bad shit. We then cut to the library and we can see Casey telling Stokely his theories on what's going on. And she says that it's just like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which she seems to know a lot about. And she has to remind him that this is fiction and they start bringing up other sci-fi directors and writers. And Casey says, what if all of them experienced real events and wrote them as movies and books? And it's now considered fiction. And Stokely tells them that one, the body snatchers won at the end. So that couldn't have been <laughs> a true story. And two, it's just a rip off of the book puppet masters, right? Yeah. And then she remembers that Puppet Masters was a parasite that took over and not pod people because they haven't seen any pods around. And she says, this is kind of fun. I'm just going to go along with it for a while. Right. Like she just wants to get in on this. And since she mentioned the parasites, he thinks of the prawn in the science classroom. So he grabs her, Delilah, who has stand with her, and they all go into the science classroom. But the prawn is gone. It's just water in the tank. I guess it got sent off to the university. Or it's in somebody's head. Who fucking knows? <laughs> but he tells everyone his theory, and Delilah steps in to back him up a little bit and share some more info, and Stan thinks they're crazy, right? 
But in yeah. the science lab next door, we see Zeke take Mary Beth in there, and that's where he steals all his shit to make his stuff at home, we find out. And he starts hitting on Mary Beth, and they start to kiss as they hear Casey talking about aliens taking over the school next door through, like, the air vent. And he's like, hold on, and he goes out in the hallway. We then cut back to the classroom and Zeke busts in the room, like screaming and holding his stomach like it's aliens, right? And it's busting out and he's acting sick. And then he starts laughing and he starts talking shit and tells Casey he's the only alien on campus, right? So Zeke's yep. asked Casey for some reason. At this point, John Stewart pops in like the shape behind Zeke <laughs> and he wants to know what's going on there in the classroom. Shouldn't these kids be in class, he says, which is exactly what I was thinking at this point in time. <laughs> And Zeke jokingly tells the teacher that Casey thinks that all of the faculty have been taken over by aliens. So John Stewart walks over, closes the windows, locks the doors, and attacks them all, slinging Zeke and Stan around like they're nothing. And Zeke yanks the paper cutter blade off of the paper cutter and cuts off a few of the teacher's fingers, which animate and run around with tentacles coming out. And it looks like shit, to be honest. It's not that good. Yeah. And Zeke ends up stabbing the teacher in the eye with a scat pen, which kills him. He starts to like dissolve a bit and foam shoots out. And Casey picks a prawn off the ground as proof and puts it in the jar. I'm assuming it popped out of the finger because the way the fingers run around, it's because he had prawn all over his body. Yeah. I love how I'm calling him prawn like it's um, District 9 the whole time. Like I feel like I'm covering District 9 the amount of times I've said the word prawn in this episode. Dude, you're just making me fucking hungry. Like I want some coconut prawns so bad right now. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. I'll settle for tiger shrimp. <laughs> Jeez. What am I going to eat later? That's the real question. Anyways, <laughs> they decide they need to get the fuck out of there and try to slyly walk through the hallway to the parking lot to get to Zeke's car and leave. But they can see that almost the kids have been taken over now and they're all staring at them, stalking them. Fighting couples are now being happy with each other and you can hear people whispering all their names. It's kind of creepy. <laughs> be one of us <laughs> not in this one <laughs> but they all pile into the gto and get the hell out of there and they're checking the radio for news but there's nothing on the radio and the police have set up roadblocks leaning into everybody's car when they stop them and it's to turn the whole town right yep and there's a good line earlier where stan is asking casey and stokely why would they take over nothing Ohio? And they respond with, if you're going to take over the planet, would you blow up the White House Independence Day style or would you sneak in through the back door? And that starts to really sink in when you see what's going on here, right? Yeah. Homegrown and shit. Yep. Yep. Speaking of which, Zeke takes them all back to his house and his room is in the uh, exterior garage and it's basically a meth lab, right? He's making yeah. speed in the bathtub. And we find out that his parents are out of town in Europe, just like Miss Burke said earlier. And we find out that basically no dose is a secret ingredient in the scat. That's it. But Zeke cuts up the creature that Casey took and feeds part of it to his mouse. And it sprouts tentacles, goes in his ear and bonds with them instantly. And Zeke reaches in, kills the mouse, pulls it out and dissects it. And he explains that the prawn are parasites and they're incomplete and need a host to survive. And it dries out the bodies, as you can see in the mouse. And his drug is a diuretic. And that's what dried out John Stewart when he stabbed him in the eye. And he pours it on the prawn that he's examining just to prove it. And it basically melts 
like a slug with salt on it, but in a quick time lapse, right? Yep. Like fucking uh, uh, Stripe and Gremlins. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> but they're trying to figure out how they're going to stop this invasion. And Stokely says that in theory, if they kill the leader or the queen, it would free the rest of them, right? Yeah, like hive mind and shit. Exactly. So they all start to wonder who the queen alien is. And then they all start to get paranoid of one another, very much like the thing. And they start accusing each other of being aliens and Stan takes Zeke's gun that he had in the room. And they basically reenact the blood test scene from the thing, but with meth, right? Yeah. No Petri dish required. <laughs> nope. They all start to snort the shit up their nose one at a time, tweaking out, including a hesitant Mary Beth who's afraid that it would kill her due to her allergies until we get to Delilah, the last one left, who gets it close to her nose, freaks out, and you can see like the prawn crawling around under her skin, and we can see that she's infected. She then slings them all around like rag dolls smashes the meth lab up and runs outside to Mr. Tate, who's waiting in the student driver car. <laughs> it's so yeah. ridiculous looking. And they drive away. Oh. At this point, they assume that Drake is the queen and they need to find her to stop this. And since they're in a football town and it's Friday night, they know where everyone in town's going to be. I don't want your life. <laughs> exactly. and at this point i'm gonna go ahead and call it the third act it's a long third act but this is the third act they head to the school to stop who they think is the queen and we can see their school football team smashing the shit out of the other team slinging them around everywhere and as they tackle the the kids from the other school they're spitting prawn into their ears infecting them as well right so they're starting their global takeover And all of this is done to a cover of another brick in the wall. And the song is so fitting for this movie, but I wish they would have used the original and not this cover. I'm so fucking glad you said that because I agree 100%. (laughs) Yeah, the hey, teacher, leave those kids along. It's it's so perfect, but I don't like the cover. But our crew, the Breakfast Club crew, all meet up in the school gym and they're followed by Principal Drake, who they tie up and hold at gunpoint and they try to get her to take the scat and she refuses. And Stan and Casey can't really do anything about it. So we see Zeke barricade the door, walk up, yank the gun from Stan and blow Drake's brains out of her head. Right. (laughs) He doesn't give a shit. And she stands up with the bullet hole in her head and we can see the creatures crawling around and running out of the hole. And Mary Beth throws all of the scat that was in this giant jar onto Mrs. Drake, dissolving her into nothing and basically getting rid of Zeke's whole stash. Yep. They want to know if this worked and they see that the game is clearing out outside due to rain and... They send Stan out with one of the last couple of pins that Zeke had in his pocket to check the coach to see if they're all good. And Stokely kisses him on the way out, right? Like she's finally showing her affection for him that they were all guessing earlier. Yep. He approaches the coach and the football players, and they're all standing outside in the rain with their arms out, soaking up the rain. And you can see tentacles coming out of them. And when the lightning flashes, you can see this like crazy monster skeleton, which that part doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But, oh shit, they didn't get the queen, right? It looks kind of cool. It does look cool. But we (laughs) cut to inside the gym and Stan pops up in the window begging to get in. And he says that, oh, shit, she wasn't the queen. The coach is after me. Let me in. And they don't know if he's turned or not. So they slip the last scat pin under the door for him to test himself. And he acts like he's about to snort it. 
and then he pours it on the ground. Oh shit, Stan's infected now. And they run off and and Stokely is still sitting at the door crying, looking at him because she likes him. And he's telling her how much better it is when she joined them and, and she should just accept it and join them as well. And Mary Beth pulls her away and they go further into the gym. Zeke thinks that he has more scat in his car. So him and Casey head out to the parking lot to try to go get it. And they use Casey as a decoy to lure away the football team as Zeke sneaks to his car. And he's chased by the football players, no bus. Delilah's in there waiting for him. He gets away from him and he runs because he's fast when he's being chased, right? And he heads back towards the gym. Meanwhile, Zeke manages to get his car, but he's stopped by hot Miss Burke, who attacks him inside his car, and he manages to get his seatbelt on as he speeds up and rams the car into a bus, slinging her out the front windshield. And he basically rolled out of the car as it hit with the scat pins out of the floorboard, and the car and bus explode, and we see a ragdoll Miss Burke fly through the air, catch on fire and bounce, and her decapitated head... It's crawling around with Cthulhu-like tentacles. And so it climbs up her body and reattaches the head back to the body. So apparently, if you got the prawn, you can heal like mad crazy. Yeah, that, that shit reminded me of the thing, too. <laughs> a little bit, except for the CGI, like I said, aged poorly. They should have oh, practical, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it still would have looked good like the thing. Hey, yep. But Zeke sees this, freaks out, and takes back off towards the gym himself. Inside the gym, Mary Beth asks Stokely who she thinks the queen bee is, and we find out that it's actually Mary Beth, the new girl, which was really obvious the whole fucking movie to me watching this. Yes. And she tentacle bitch slaps Stokely to the ground, and we see a flashback of how she faked the scat at the at the garage in Zeke's room by sealing up her nose and then unscrewing the bottom of the pin with a tentacle and dumping it out, which I rewound the scene. And when you watch it, none of that shit actually fucking happened when she took it. They could have shot that better where she at least palmed it or something. Exactly. But, oh shit, she's the queen. She tricked them all, right? Didn't trick me. (laughs) (laughs) But Casey runs in and grabs Stokely and they book it into the pool room as Mary Beth shifts into a giant squid-like monster and chases them. And I don't know if Mary Beth was a body that the queen took over or if she can shapeshift or what, but from this point on, she can flip in between Mary Beth and a giant fucking monster with tentacles, which aged poorly (laughs) yet again. The CGI shots of it. Yes. When we get to the close up practical, it's okay. Yeah. The one (laughs) practical shot actually looked pretty badass. (laughs) But we see Casey and Stokely run past the school swimming pool as Mary Beth jumps in in monster form, swims across, and dives out like Jaws, grabbing Stokely, knocking her the fuck out for a second, and pulling her in the water. And Casey manages to get her out with like a, like a pool skimmer net thing, right? Yeah. And they run off into the locker room, and Mary Beth shifts back into girl form and starts falling in behind him. At this point, we see Zeke run into the locker room, and he has Mary Beth on one side of him and Stokely on the other, and they're blaming each other for being an alien. And Zeke, being the intelligent guy that he is, has a very important question for Mary Beth. Ask me something, Mary Beth. Why are you naked? Exactly. That's... There's a couple of things in this movie that are really good that they put them in situations where the obvious doesn't happen, that it does happen in this movie. Thank fucking Christ. Yeah, yeah. 
But he goes to stab her with a scat pin, and he's stopped by Stokely from behind, who we can see is now taken over. I'm assuming the queen spit prawn out in the water that went in her ear, yada, yada. And Casey grabs her and throws her into like a, a cage that used to store things, right? Yeah, children. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, it's like a cage at a Best Buy or something, right? Like you can see what equipment's in there, but it, but you can lock it so people can't take it. <laughs> That's where we keep the iPods. Exactly. But in this case, he locks Stokely up because he doesn't want to kill her, right? Like they want to stop the queen. They know who the queen is now. They can save Stokely. Yeah. And at this point, Zeke runs up to Casey and he wants him to take some scat. And Casey refuses for a second. And Zeke lets him know that he left for five minutes and he's come back and now everyone's a fucking alien and he's going to take the scat. So he snorts the scat, passes the test, and they run off and get separated again until Casey sees Zeke's unconscious body get thrown over the lockers and slammed into a wall, giving him a concussion and bleeding from the skull at this point. So Casey's the last man standing, the final girl, if you will. Yeah. And Casey takes the last of the scat pins from Zeke's unconscious hand as a naked Mary Beth walks around in the locker room looking for him and talking to him, taunting him and trying to explain why he would be better off joining her and he'd be accepted. And she explains how her world ended and she came here now to take over this world. And as she's doing this, you can see the shadows of tentacles everywhere and it looks badass. And makes zero fucking sense because she's in human form doing all this. Yes, but I love it. It looks amazing. Yeah, her. it's the aura of, of her energy. And yeah, I no matter how bad it looks, I still love it. I, I think that shit's so cool. And it doesn't look bad. It just doesn't make any sense unless we're supposed to assume that she's actually in like her true form. And that's why the shadows are depicting that. But talking oh, in Mary just- Beth's voice. And that's a cheap way to do it. That's kind of how I try to wrap it up in a neat bow on my head. But either way, it looks fucking cool. Say I went the aura route, but it's fine either way. I thought it was neat. But Casey takes off running and she shifts back into her giant monster form. And he runs back into the gym with her giving chase. And he baits her into a corner where he can run behind the bleachers. And he hits the auto bleacher, you know, close or shut button. As he dives off, running to the bleachers, diving through the rails. And she's closing in behind him. But the bleachers are closing from the starting order to the end one at a time. And eventually he dives out the end of the bleachers as she's pinned by the bleachers. And he takes all the scat pins in his hand and stabs her in her monster eye. Guaranteed to jack you up. She spits prawn into his face that start to crawl in. But she starts to dry up and die. And the prawn fall out of his face dead and his wounds heal. And he you know, drops on the ground to take a, take a siesta there. Right. I would have done it further away from the giant alien queen in case she got back up, but she appears to be dead. Yeah. And he goes back to the cage to check on Stokely who seems fine. And they're dead dried up prawn on the ground all around her. And Zeke wakes up behind him with a jump scare and wants to know if it's all over. And at this point we cut to one month later and see that the school is back to normal. However, there are news crews everywhere talking about stories of missing teachers and students saying there was an alien invasion. And we can see that Zeke plays football now and that him and Burke have a thing going officially and Stan and Stokely are together now. And he's off the team and she's not a goth chick anymore and a flower print dress. And Delilah and Casey have hooked up, which looks odd because 
Elijah Wood still looks like a 12 year old kid in this movie. And yeah. she looks like a grown ass woman and them kissing just looks so odd, but it worked for their characters, I guess. And we can see that Casey's on the cover of time and people magazines are stopping in an alien invasion and we fade to credits. And that last little ending scene is my least favorite part of the movie. Yeah, it's kind of weak, but the whole her ending up with Casey makes sense because he's now the most famous, most popular guy in school. Yeah. And she her her life plan was to ride the coattails of the popular boy. So I almost give it a pass, but it's too it's too putting a fucking bow on it right there at the end. Yeah. And I don't know, like Stokely completely changing her image and Zeke being on the football team. Those are the two standout ones to me that seemed really odd. I guess it's kind of a reflection on how much people can change in high school. Like they were changing because of the alien invasion, but they also changed themselves. Honestly, I think Zeke huh? on the football team is the part that makes the least sense to me. Yeah. And it just when you think you can accept it, he's fucking smoking at practice. <laughs> yeah. But after we fade to credits, we get a montage of all the characters showing scenes, popping up the, the actor or actress's name. Some of them are old scenes, but some of them are new scenes as well. Like when it shows John Stewart, he has an eye patch on and he's laughing and he's got a bandage on his hand because he only has a thumb and he's trying to hold a donut in between his stubby <laughs> fingers and the thumb. <laughs> and that's it. That's our film. It's a perfect mesh of invasion of the body snatchers with breakfast clubs somehow done very well. And a little bit of the thing thrown in there with the paranoia and the test scene. And it is very much a Kevin Williamson movie because every time we do one of these movies, if it's not a movie I've seen 500 times, I have to look up the characters' names because I refer to them as the actors a lot of times. And I knew every character in this movie's name that was in the main cast because they all were characters. And in an hour and 44 minutes, they were completely fleshed out. Yep. And it was all believable as far as their characters. And it was a very nice mesh and we had Kevin Williamson once again working with a auteur of a director to to knock out an awesome movie true I really thought I was going to come back to this movie as one of them that like yeah I think I liked it when I was younger but something tells me I'm really not going to like going back to it and uh it's better than I thought it was going to be yep for anyone who's fucking followed this podcast, there's a running joke of how much I can't stand Josh Hartnett, <laughs> which I don't get. I'm okay with Josh Hartnett in this movie. Like it <laughs> happened. Okay. Y'all, it finally fucking happened. <laughs> I'm okay with the Zeke character. I'm okay with the way it's portrayed. I love him in lucky number 11 in 30 days a night. I don't know. I like his character. He kind of took a break from acting and came back in a penny dreadful, but I, I wish he would do more stuff and more dark, serious roles. And he's starting to look a little bit like a young Tommy Lee Jones. And I could see him doing those yeah. type of roles. Yeah. Like definitely. he can do serious Tommy Lee Jones type roles. And I feel like this movie really showcased that he can be a stern, badass character. And I love how he did the fuck up his hair thing, just like an H2O. Cause I remember watching <laughs> the, the behind the scenes H2O and he said how much the hairdresser hated him. Cause she'd spend an hour doing his hair and they throw a beanie on there and shake the beanie and yank it off. Right. Like yep. he just, he didn't want to be the pretty boy. Didn't work out well for him because <laughs> he was a heartthrob in that era and did a lot of those type movies, but he did yeah. these kind of things whenever he could. And he's done them in the, later part of his career as well. So you can tell this is the direction he wanted to go. Yeah. Nobody in the movie's bad. There's a few 
plot holes and there's a few misses in there in the writing and the cgi like you said has not aged well at all i don't think it aged well 20 years ago <laughs> but i have no recollection of this movie in the 90s to remember if it looked good or not <laughs> but it's it's still a fun movie and it's like you said it's friggin invasion of the body snatchers with the you know the breakfast club and it it really is and uh it's a fun ride and uh like i said i i, I thought i was gonna remember it being bad and go back and watch it is actually much better than i thought it was gonna be and it's uh kind of something different you know a lot of the a lot of the alien flicks they kind of go beat for beat and yeah. you know exactly what's going to happen and how it's going to go down. The bait and switch between uh, the two Queens is terrible. That's that's even I could see through that. Yeah. Especially when she dumps what's left of the scat on the principal. Yeah. There's you, you know, right then it's fucking her. And I don't like how you just saw her take the scat in the previous scene. And like I said, all they had to do if they would have had her hand palming the pin so that you couldn't see the bottom of the pin. Yep. could have left it questionable where you debated it. But in that scene, they made it look like she took it. Yeah, she slams her head back. Yeah, yeah. and in the flashback scene, it's shot completely differently. And I just kind of wish they would have done it, like I said, palmed it or something so that that part you're not. I don't like it when you're being cheated in the movie. Like you can't figure yeah. it out because they set it up in a way where you couldn't on purpose. Like wasn't there's red herrings. They purposely showed you, look, it can't be her. Oh, wait, it still is anyways, because it actually was like this and you saw it wrong. But with that being said, we're covering Kevin Williamson as a screenplay writer. And this movie definitely had a stamp on it. And it definitely still had that Rodriguez stamp on it, too, in the end. But it was a fun flick. And a lot of his movies we have covered somewhat. We've done the Scream series. We've briefly gone over the I Know What You Did Last Summer movie and the slasher episodes. So we had to be careful what we we reached in the bag for to cover. And that leads us to 2005's Cursed. That's how we got here. <laughs> All right. So uh, <laughs> this movie, I, I'm going to go through the cast before we get into it. But um, of course, written by Williamson, directed by Wes Craven. We'll get into their involvement in the production more here in a minute. The true definition of production hell. <laughs> yes we've got christina ricci as ellie i immediately think of adam's family but of course she was in casper fear and loathing and uh lizzie borden twice along with a lot of other stuff yep got jesse eisenberg as jimmy which zombie land social network now you see me he's lex luther also yeah 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 i still think he's the best thing I've seen him in is Zombieland as far as yeah. to date. Um, that role was really good for him. We've got uh, friggin' Milo Vinamiglia, which I hope I said his name right this time, as Bo, who we've talked about before because of Stay Alive. Yep. <laughs> who, you know, breakout star in Heroes. And he's pretty damn rigid in this movie until it gets to his coming out scene. Yeah. I don't know if it was done that way on purpose, but it, it doesn't read well for me. We've got a uh, take him or leave him fucking Joshua Jackson <laughs> as Jake, who was in Scream 2, Urban Legend, and of course, Dawson's Creek. I'll actually take Joshua Jackson, and God damn it if I'm not upset that you didn't put the Mighty Ducks in there. Okay, fine. D2, the Mighty Ducks. <laughs> was he not in all of them? He was in two and three. I do not believe he was in one. I would have to double check it, but I don't think he was in one. You are being <laughs> fact-checked right now, sir, because I'm a huge Mighty Ducks fan. Please stand by for an update. <laughs> I'm pretty damn sure he wasn't in the first one. <laughs> Boom. Charlie Conway, Joshua Jackson. 
He was in the first one? Yes, he's the kid. Holy shit. He's the star. So he well, the coach is the star, I guess, but he's the star kid. <laughs> Him and Amelia. She's the longest been since I've seen that shit. <laughs> Love those movies growing up. Oh, I never got into them, man. That's back when I wasn't into sports ball at all, so I didn't get into any of it. That's how I got into hockey, living where we live. <laughs> We're about halfway through a third of this cast. <laughs> We've got Judy Greer as Joni. I always come right back to what women want, and I don't care what people say about it because <laughs> she was suicidy in fucking what women want, and I always remember that. But she was a jawbreaker and all kinds of shit. And to me, she fucking steals the show in this movie as far as who I believe in this flick. And Halloween, Halloween 2018. Oh, fuck. <laughs> yes. See. I'm so not into Halloween, man. That shit is erased from my mind. You're fired. <laughs> She's Jamie Lee Curtis's daughter. That's right. I fucking forgot, man. Speaking of forgetting shit, um, as we were getting ready to record this episode, I totally forgot to put her in the cast. <laughs> so, Judy Greer. Really? She's kind of an important character in this movie. I know. So, uh, hence why I didn't really look that hard when I mentioned what she's been in. So, we've also got Shannon Elizabeth as Becky, who's been in a lot of shit. We've brought her up before. Most recently, Jack Frost. Yes. We've got Christina Annapaw. As Brooke, and if I'm saying her name wrong, correct me. She's in True Blood, but who could forget the straight-to-video Cruel Intentions 3, right? <laughs> me. I didn't know it fucking existed. Who was she in True Blood? I don't know, but she was in like four or five episodes. I bet she's one of like the fairy girls. I could see that. I don't want to say she's beady-eyed, but she's got... She has a very interesting face as far as... <laughs> Look, don't come, don't come back to the fucking nun thing, all right? <laughs> I'm just saying she's, I like big eyed girls. Okay. And so when I see a girl that with smaller eyes, I'm not attracted to that, but she has this interesting thing about her, even though she's got small eyes. Look, man, I'm starting to be more honest on the podcast. Let's just go with it. Okay. <laughs> so like in the previous film we discussed, we needed that up and coming singing star. So we got Mandy Moore, but more on that in a minute. Instead, we ended up with Maya as Jenny. We've got Portia de Rossi as Zella, who I'm probably going to accidentally call Zelda. Get ready for it. <laughs> I think I do in my head. <laughs> she was in fucking Scream 2, Stigmata, Arrested Development, and a whole lot of other shit. Yeah. She's not in her much, but she's good for what she does. And we've got Derek fucking Mears as the werewolf when it's not CGI. I'm so glad you put that in there. <laughs> I was so surprised when I saw it was Derek Mears. This has to be one of the earlier things he did, right? Somehow we just keep like dovetailing episodes together with some kind of a link. And uh, here's this one. I'm looking at your notes, though. and I'm really upset that you left out such a star as Scott Bayo playing himself. And there goes the Easter egg for the episode for anyone who didn't know. <laughs> now, what's funny about Scott Bayo being in this? Okay, so his publicist, Judy Greer's character is Joni. Mm -hmm. So you can go back to Scott Bayo in Joni Loves Chachi. Yep. Which actually translates to Joni Loves Cock. So all what? that's just funny to me. <laughs> Thanks for making me spill beer over my expensive <laughs> keyboard. Okay. 
And we have some special effects by K and B more on that in a moment. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. What happened to these special effects in this movie? So bad. Okay. So there is of course a stigma around this movie. You got people that just shit on it, which I'm sure I'm going to do some of, but over the years, you've had a lot of people talk about what went wrong with this movie. And this movie is like a case study in studio fuckery. And over the years, people have shat on it's Wes Craven's fault. It's uh, Kevin Williamson's fault. It's Rick Baker's fault. And it's not. It's Bob Weinstein's fault. And it's really interesting to go back through and watch interviews over the years. And people actually start to figure out and reveal more and more of how it went down. So I'm going to go into that a little bit because there's no way to cover this movie and not go into all that. So Kevin had originally written a story about a dancer who was a werewolf, but kept it a secret until a serial killer attacked her leading to him being turned into a werewolf. And by the time it got to Bob Weinstein, he wanted it to be more overt, more on the nose werewolf flick. And that really is the beginning of curse being cursed. And (laughs) Bob was a, dick about it he would literally do like the the two people being split up during an interrogation thing and put kevin and wes against each other to try to get shit remade the way he wanted it and that was right out the gate damn so about four weeks from wrapping with 70 to 90 percent of the film in the can bob comes out demanding his first rewrite and he's like fuck the ending as a matter of fact kevin go back and rewrite the movie from square one They do a full fucking rewrite and reshoot. Then a third 20-day reshoot. Williamson walks off the project at this point. And then Wes said they actually came back for another 10-day reshoot. So four shoots all together. I mean, just, just doomed for failure. You'll see in the credits that you've got special uh, makeup effects by Rick Baker. Yep. A few years ago, Rick Baker was on the Joe Rogan experience. And he says, I'm going to set the story straight on this right now. I was at the project at the very beginning. And when the first major delay occurred, I told Bob, take what I've built, put it in storage and call me when you're ready to pick shit back up and we'll finish. And the problem is he never got called back onto the film. This is what Baker says. And uh, that that's not his work in the film. And a few years Um, I don't want to say a few years later, but a few years ago, he actually put up some pictures on his Twitter saying, these are the werewolves I made for this movie. And they look so badass. Yes. They look better than the K and B one. I'll fucking say it. Um, cause it's Rick Baker. (laughs) I mean, do I have to say anything else? It's Rick Baker. The K and B (laughs) one looks pretty good too, but you don't get to see it that much because it gets replaced with CGI. Exactly. It looks a lot better than their late phases rabbit werewolf thing. Yes, 100%. <laughs> so uh, a little bit more on what the original intent was in the movie. The dancer idea spun into the Jenny character being played by Mandy Moore, meeting a werewolf costume guy at a party who turned out to be a real werewolf who kills her in the parking lot. That was going to be the opening. And this version of the film also had Corey Feldman along with Bayo and his assistant ending up being the two baddies by the time you get to the end of the film. Yes. You even had Heather fucking laying in camp with a bit part in the movie. What the fuck happened? Well, <laughs> you can one, you can read 
the closest thing to the original script online. It's out there. If you want the bits and pieces, the horrorsyndicate.com did a good write-up comparison and the original script so much better because you had three characters going through the transformation. And the third character that's missing from the film entirely now was played by fucking Skeet Ulrich. Yep. I mean, for what Bob turned this into and how much it turns into scream towards the end of the fucking movie, I don't know why they got rid of them. Like fucking go with it. The original idea of the three different, because you didn't have the brother and sister thing. Nope. You just had three people get the curse and what they go through finding out about it and, and dealing with it. It was much more grounded. um, I think from what little bit of reading I did. And it's crazy because I remember seeing the entertainment, Shit, what's the name of that show? Entertainment Tonight, right? Yep. I remember seeing that episode on TV, and I was actually able to find that scene on YouTube when we decided to cover this movie. And they did a behind-the-scenes thing like they always do on Entertainment Tonight on Wes Craven's new film. And they're showing all these scenes being shot, and they all have Skeet Ulrich in them, and they're all badass scenes that aren't in the fucking movie. And it's just crazy to know that there's a whole nother curse out there that we haven't seen and will probably never get to see and it was probably a much better film than what we got and as far as never being able to see the quote-unquote mythical craven cut i don't know why they they've decided to title it that but anyways the closest thing to the original thing they shot the editor patrick lucier actually said fairly recently in an interview that the footage does still exist but not in any shape that the fans would want to see it oh i want to see it I don't care if it there's no score and it's just pieces. I'd love to see it with the time code stamps on it and shit. I'll watch the whole fucking thing. Yeah. I don't need color correction or anything. Just fucking let me see it. K and B K and B has been shit on so much for this movie. K and B is not a digital studio. They're a fucking practical studio. Why people shit on K and B so much. I know. I even saw (laughs) shit that was talking about how they need to stay out of CGI and just stick a practical. They didn't do any of the fucking CGI. Yeah, there's interviews with them where people are like, but y'all did work on Chronicles of Narnia. And they're like, yeah, our shit's the real shit. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But uh, you can go online and find the behind the scenes makeup transformation for Judy Greer that they did because they actually did her transformation in different stages in makeup and then handed it off to the CGI crew to say, here's your your bullet points. Go make your transformation. You'll have to send me that because I want to see that. That sounds badass. I haven't seen it yet. Maybe I can post it on the Instagram or something. Okay. You know, the, the most prominent picture that's, that I've seen that's been released of the Rick Baker makeup. Yeah. Their scene by scene transformation in makeup of Judy Greer is going that direction. Okay. And then it veers off at the end. And of course the transformation will get to that. So for anybody out there who's been shitting on K and B, you need to shit on Sony image works. Luma Pictures and FX Cartel because they're the ones credited for the fucking digital work at the end of the movie. And I I don't even shit on them. Shit on the Weinsteins because we know if they were fucking everybody else in this production, they were probably fucking these guys too. Yep. So with all that out of the way, let's get into the movie. We open with Bowling for Soup playing Little Red Riding Hood (laughs) on the boardwalk. I don't really like that band, but it's such a good cover. (laughs) We're immediately going to go into story time with Josh. Jeez. So that, of course, is a cover from Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs, mm-hmm. who most people know more well for Wooly Bully. Yep. And 
when Sam Samudio, you know, kind of changed his life and started becoming a minister, he was doing witnessing and testimony and Bible studies at the penal farm. And my dad was out there doing it too. So they ended up becoming friends. And there was a time when my after school caretaker were Sam Samudio and his wife. I knew your dad knew him. I just didn't know they took care of you after school. Yeah. There, I used to hang out with his daughter, Brisa. It, it's weird times. Anyways, that's the end of story time with Josh. <laughs> but it's so fun. <laughs> so we're on the boardwalk and we see Jenny and Becky and they sit down with Zella, the fortune teller. And she immediately tells them that they're both in great danger. Come on, Becky, let's go. Beware the moon. It feeds in the moonlight. And stay clear of the moors. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I can't see a werewolf movie warning and not think of that. And uh, they're both like, this is fucking hogwash bullshit. We wanted to know about a guy we're bailing. And Becky loses track of Jenny and drives home alone. It doesn't show that, but we're going to know that here soon. Downtown at the Wax Museum, we see Jimmy trying to hit on Brooke with the help of his dog, Zipper. Because he's got a good idea going on where he lets the dog wander off. And he's like, oh, you found my dog. Like, yeah. smart guy. But her boyfriend, Bo, shows up to ruin the whole thing, and he's a complete fucking dick to Jimmy and his dog. I think your dog is gay, too. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's ridiculous, and then when he says that about the dog, it's even funnier. Oh, dude, the, the gay bashing, I get, I kind of get why it's a setup for later in the movie, but damn, is it over the top. <laughs> well, and Williamson being gay himself, like, putting the jokes in the movie, like, makes it even funnier. I know, right? Well, no, Lance Bass showing up later on in the movie before he came out is what makes it even funnier. <laughs> Lance Bass is in this movie? Yes. I miss that. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> I watched this shit three times and I, I didn't even catch that. <laughs> this movie jumps around a lot. So you're going to hear Josh say, meanwhile, over at cut to just here we go. It's just going to be meanwhile and everybody's used to it by now. <laughs> So over at the soon to be open Club Tinsel, which was originally just going to be the Wax Museum, but after the rewrites that ended up being Club Tinsel, where all the shit was going to go down by the end of the movie. Oh, see, I had heard that it was going to be Planet Hollywood and they decided not to do it, which is why Joshua Jackson has the Planet Hollywood joke. And we can't say that word, he says, right? That makes sense. I wonder if that was in rewrite two, three or four. Well, f this is four. So that had to have been rewrite two or three. <laughs> I heard it was in 17, but... <laughs> So here at Tinsel, we meet Jimmy's sister, Ellie, and her boyfriend, Jake, and uh, he's showing her the club's props, but uh, I think the background is more interesting because he's like, this is the Wolfman. This is, yeah, there's some stereotypical stuff, but if you watch the background, you can see Freddie, you can see Greg Nicotero, you can see a ghost face mask, and I think there's a deadite. Um, Pinhead's in there somewhere else. too. <laughs> yes. Watch the background whenever they're at Tinsel because there's all kinds of cool prop shit back there. But they end up locked on Lon Chaney's real silver pimp cane. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's going to be a setup for later on. But more importantly, we learn that Jake is like hella stressed out about the opening that's going to be coming up in two days. And he's pushing Ellie away because he needs his space. So we cut to a city skyline shot that if you look, it's shaped in a pentagram. <laughs> Never noticed that. And we're viewing it overlooking Mulholland Drive as bro and sis drive home, who I will start calling Sibs later on. So I'm not saying sis, <laughs> I'm saying Sibs. They hit a wolf, dog, something. It's big and it's furry, like what you hit in Florida. Yes, um, I was about to say I've done this before. <laughs> Only I need to get in the fucking car and take off afterwards. 
<laughs> and in doing so, they slam into Becky's car, sending it down a ravine. And they go down to check on her and they find her pinned in the car. And uh, she's all freaking out. She's like, do you hear dripping? Do you smell gasoline? I think the car is going to blow up. No, no, no. The car is not going to blow up. Um, actually, it could. Jesus Christ, give me the fuck out It's not a Michael Bay movie. If I remember correctly, that is actually a scene that was originally shot from the original version of the movie with Skeet Ulrich and his character hadn't walked in the frame yet or whatever for the setup of everybody meeting and they kept it. But like, that's the crazy thing about this movie. There are still parts in it from the original movie and they just fucking change the story around it and use the footage. Yep. A crap ton of it. Yeah. <laughs> so Jimmy gets her legs free. And Becky starts being kind of bitchy. She's like, you better have insurance. And Jimmy's like, well, we hit an animal or an animal hit us. And uh, just as Becky starts to say, it wasn't a dog, was it? A fucking werewolf snatches her ass out the car. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Jimmy grabs onto Becky's legs and Ellie grabs onto Jimmy's legs and they all get dragged through the woods. And eventually Becky gets ripped away from them and the Sibs are both scratched up in the process. And they see lights from up above from the first responders back up on the street. And uh, all of a sudden, what's left of Becky flies into frame, knocking Ellie down. And uh, we clearly see half of Becky try to crawl away with the sleepaway camp face. Yes. (laughs) And uh, back up at the street, they give their statement to Officer Offerman. Because yep. it's Nick Offerman. <laughs> and uh, Jimmy is convinced it was a wolf. He then goes to check on Zipper in the car, who growls at him and bites him. And the best scene of the movie is now over, um, in my opinion, because this is <laughs> the way this feels and paces and the violence. It's all really good. I guess I should go ahead and say now, I only have the unrated version, not the PG version. This was released as PG or PG-13. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Thank you. PG-13. Okay. <laughs> And we'll get into the whole R PG 13 shit a little later. So uh, if I'm going into some violence and F bombs that people aren't used to, that's why. I guess I also have the unrated version. I didn't even look. I mean, (laughs) I'll be honest. I saw this piece of shit in theaters. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. I saw Wes Craven, Kevin Williamson, werewolf movie. And I was like, sign me the fuck up open at night. I know what the fuck could go wrong. I didn't actually see this until I met my wife. Yeah, Weinsteins. Weinsteins can run a lot of things. Two particular brothers. If you have the same last name, I'm sorry. Change your name. Um, (laughs) Just don't don't change it to Epstein. That's not any better. Nope. Anyways. (laughs) So once the brother and sister get home, they get into a uh, a quick spat about what they saw. Because Jimmy's like more and more wolf, wolf, werewolf. (laughs) Like his brain's already going there. And everybody else is saying like bobcat and bear, right? Yeah, mountain lion, but really angry owl, you know, anything but what? a werewolf. <laughs> Maybe you did have a different version than me. I don't remember the goddamn owl bear from D and D. Oh shit! But Jimmy heads up to his room, and uh, Ellie locks up, and uh, she picks up a picture that's them two and their dead parents. And it's not actually said yet, but it's really implied that like Ellie is the motherly figure taking care of her younger brother and mom and dad aren't there for some reason. You can go ahead and connect the dots right now. Meanwhile, upstairs, <laughs> Jimmy hops in his werewolf comics powered time machine and goes back to the 1999 internet. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> it looks so bad. <laughs> and he starts researching unsolved animal attacks. So once again, we already know where his brain's going to go. 
I do want to say I thought it was really nice. His floor is peppered with World of Darkness, Werewolf the Apocalypse tabletop game manuals. And I thought that was a nice touch. Because oh, is that what's mixed in? Too? Okay, that makes a lot more sense and, now. And I caught that when I saw it in theaters. I was like, oh, this movie's going to be fucking lit because they got the World of Darkness manuals in there. And it was so not that. <laughs> so not lit? Yes. So later on that night, Ellie heads downstairs and finds the house is not as secure as she left it. Fucking doors unlocked, windows open, and Jake pops up out of nowhere. And he says he got in with her hide key. And they start to kiss, and then Ellie bites a huge chunk out of his neck, and a Sam Raimi geyser of blood spews out of his neck just as Ellie wakes up from her nightmare. One, the geyser of blood is the best CGI in the movie, in my opinion. See, I thought it looked like shit. I was like, why didn't they just use real blood? Or, you know what I mean, real fake blood. Yeah, yeah. I love how how over the top it is and and the texture of it. I, I think it still looks good. But the nightmare scene wasn't even in the film and was added because it's a Craven film. Oh, this is really one of those times it happens. Then they said that K&B's onset practical blood spurt wasn't gory enough. What? Yes. And then you can still find footage of it and send it off to the CGI people to do the big geyser of blood. Then cut it out when they decided to go to the PG-13 rating. <laughs> oh, my God. This kind of encapsulates the whole fucking of this production. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. We also see Jimmy wake up, and he's naked in his backyard. Yep. Bare <laughs> ass and all. like water in his lawn. He's like, uh, what's going on here? And I kind of like that approach that like the curse is setting in. She had this fucked up dream and he obviously went running out in the wild like an animal at some point. Right. Yeah. In the original script, we would have had more of that. We would have had more of the story. Anyways, I honestly think I remember reading that that was one of the original scenes as well. Him waking up naked in the yard and they kept it. Yeah. Cause see that shit makes sense in a werewolf movie. So over a breakfast of coffee and lunch meat, <laughs> which is funny because they don't even notice how they're acting eating the lunch meat. <laughs> Ellie kind of listens to Jimmy talk about his research. He says they've been cursed by the mark of the beast. The mark will be on all of them. Mark. <laughs> oh, father! Oh I fear you, Father! Oh my God! Oh my God! <laughs> Yeah, but that goes all the way back to Lon Chaney's The Wolfman. And it does. But it's really in more modern werewolf movies, it's something that was kind of dropped. Yeah. And this tried to bring it back. And even I was one of the people that I'm like, what? And then had to do some reading like, oh, okay. It's not just like you're literally marked and so on and so forth. So I think maybe a lot of people were like me and were like, what's this from? <laughs> I grew up watching the AMC channel on Saturdays and watching those silver age of horror movies and, and Bella Lugosi and Lon Chaney and whatnot. That's really like early roots of me in a horror. I know I always say Halloween is the first horror movie I saw and that's true and Nightmare on Elm Street, but that got me into horror. But I would say that I watched all those universal films every Saturday and then somehow gotten a trauma from there. And that was actually my progression. So I love okay. seeing throwbacks to those because we would not have our genre that we love so much if it was not for the, those universal films back then. Oh yeah. No way. So we end up following LA to work and uh, <laughs> we see that she's really cursed because she works on the late, late show with Craig Kilborn. <laughs> 
who had already been replaced by Craig <laughs> yes. Ferguson by the time the damn movie came out. <laughs> yes. Which is fantastic that they just had to go oh. with it. Yes, that and Carrot Top. <laughs> God, such bad ideas. So we quickly meet Kyle, who Jesse's going to give me shit about. I don't remember who plays him, but I think he was in Urban Legend. I believe so. And he was also Lex Luthor, but in the Smallville show. Hey, there we go. We got two of them in this movie. Yep. Look at us go. <laughs> I don't even like DC Comics. <laughs> And we also meet the bitchy publicist, Joni, who insinuates that Jake is a man whore and she wants to be sure that everything's set for Scott's pre-interview. And uh, Ellie and Kyle comment on how, you know, she's kind of a pain in the ass. And then Ellie's like, something smells great. What is that? (laughs) She goes wandering around the office and she goes in the break room and she finds that it's just a coworker with a nosebleed. How odd. Meanwhile, (laughs) if we didn't have enough gay bashing in this movie... Jimmy runs into Bo at school, who gay bashes him some more when he challenges him to join the wrestling team. And there's a whole back and forth about, you know, oh, rolling around with the guys. Isn't that why you do it? And and Jimmy's kind of having a bit more spine here in front of Brooke this time than the first encounter because, you know, he's changing too. But we just had to get that part in there. God, so much of this just bounces around. So later that night at the PETA party... <laughs> Ellie gets confirmation that not only did Jake bang Joni, but Jenny too. And she's the girl from the opening from the fortune teller, not Becky, but the other chick played by Maya. So Ellie sits down with Scott Bayo to do the pre-interview and she's looking up and she's getting kind of worked up by the full moon. Bayo's getting worked up too. Cause he kind of starts to come on to her like a pervy Weinstein. And, um, yep. What's weird about this scene, because she's like, he's like, there's something about you and I just can't put my finger on it. And she's like, well, you're using your whole hand because he's grabbing her leg. And she's like, I got to go. And she walks off and he's like, but aren't you going to finish your drink? Like, he's like some kind of date rapist. But if you pay attention as she walks away, he picks up her drink after that and starts drinking it. What you're supposed to understand is that she's changing and she's just oozing a pure animal attraction right now and that that's why he was coming on to her. I don't think it reads well in that moment and I don't think it's fair to Scott Bayo because you have to remember this way later in the movie to put two and two together. I, I caught that and I was shocked that Scott Bayo did that and then you see in a later scene in the movie though they specifically explain the uh, animal attraction and stuff and it, it, it kind of fixes it for you. Yeah, because I think even Kyle's hitting on her, right? Well, kind of, but Kyle, Kyle plays another role in this film. A red herring. (laughs) Verbatim. (laughs) So Ellie's like, I've had enough of this shit. And she goes to leave the party and Jake tries to stop her over by the elevator. And uh, she says that she's had just about enough of his past, but he says he's changed off to the parking garage. She goes. She gets in her car and we get this quick werewolf POV coming up on her car as she gets away. And thank God they didn't try to do some stupid like red covered wolf vision type shit. Mm -hmm. They just kept it normal and did the camera low and you hear the panting. I'm okay with all of this. But as Ellie drives away, the werewolf spots Jenny. So Jenny gets thrown around for a while, but uh, (laughs) she manages to make it to the parking garage elevator while the werewolf does a fucking Nightmare on Elm Street claw down the side of her car. Yeah. Which is dumb, and it feels like they just put it in there because of Craven. And there's some bad CGI in there, but it's brief at least. Um, but once she's in the elevator, she pushes the button. It starts to go up, but the werewolf bashes in, opens the doors just enough to lean in and eat her ass. Well, Oliver. So she go. Meanwhile, 
Jimmy's reading about the mark in in his books. And <laughs> he notices the five points on his palm. And just as he's noticing this, Ellie comes home. And he's like, <laughs> like look at my hand. <laughs> it's like trying to explain it to her. And she holds up her hand like, stop. I don't want to hear it. And he's like, look at your hand. Yep. Because <laughs> she's got it too. And she's like, look, I'm not buying any of this. This, Look at this right here. And she goes over to the picture frame that she looked over of mom and dad earlier. She's like, this is a sterling silver picture frame. I bought it at Tiffany's. This should hurt me if I touch it. And he's like, according to the books. And she picks it up and nothing happens. She tells Jimmy to go to bed again. <laughs> There's a real quick shot. All the neighborhood dogs start surrounding the house. Mm-hmm. And they're like howling and barking and shit. <laughs> Until Jimmy leans out and howls back at him and it scares them all away. And it's not necessary. <laughs> nope. <laughs> oh. So the next day, Ellie heads to work. And as she comes in, she sees a bunch of gypsies sitting in the waiting area. And she's told it's for uh, the seance segment. And one of them happens to be Zella, who zeroes right in on her. You bear the markings of the beast. Look, I'm not trying to freak you out, but you've been infected. You're cursed. You've got to sever the line of the beast. It's the only way to break the curse. So Ellie's kind of starting to believe now because there's too many things that are starting to kind of go the way that Jimmy's saying based on what she's saying. Back at school. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fuck. So this morning, this morning when this is happening in the movie, she's like, Ellie's like putting on a nice shirt and actually kind of doing her hair a little bit. And Jimmy like fucks his hair up fucking Josh Hartnett style. (laughs) Before they go out this day. So when you see him at school, he just comes hopping down the bleachers down to where Brooke is with like all this confidence he didn't have before with his dumbass hair. Oh, it's straight up a superhero landing off the bleachers. <laughs> and uh, of course, he ends up wrestling Bo. That's that's what's going to happen. And of course, Jimmy whoops Bo's ass WWF style. Now to our younger listeners. World Wrestling Entertainment for the longest time was known as the World Wrestling Federation. Yep. And the World Wildlife Foundation took that away from them. Yes. <laughs> Moving on. And it's not just Bo's ass he whoops. He whoops another guy's ass before Bo fights him. Then he whoops both their asses at the same time. And then he suplexes Bo because he wants to show him how fairies can fly. Yes, because the gay bashing is still going on during all of this. But yeah, he does make a best part about being a fairy. You get to fly. Yep. <laughs> and so as far as the gay bashing, it's Bo gay bashing Jimmy the whole time. And yeah, that is the important part. Yeah. Just just to understand the vibe if you haven't seen this uh, tragedy of a film. <laughs> so back to Ellie. Craig's about to go on without Bayo because there's a whole thing about how he bumped Bayo because Carrot Top's bit was pretty funny and he's going to let him run long. Yes. <laughs> Said no one ever. <laughs> and uh, he's like, I need something to drink. My, my throat's dry. And he cuts his finger open, try to open a Coke. And Ellie just straight up sucks the blood right out of his finger. And uh, you can tell by the look on his face that he thinks it's kind of hot, but kind of weird. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> As Jesse would say, it's kind of unsanitary. (laughs) And uh, Ellie ends up running into the bathroom because after ingesting this blood, she's feeling a little weird. Yep. And out of all the coworkers to walk in at this point, Nosebleed walks into the bathroom with her. But Joni does bitch her out about Bayo on her way there. And she actually snaps back at her this time because Joni's character is like, like she's got some big balls. Like 
she runs the show. You're going to do what I say. This I represent him. Blah blah blah. She's she's a really strong character. She's Famke Jansen's character from uh, Haunting a Hill House. There you go. <clears throat> House on Haunted Hill. I can never get those movies right. I don't even know how I made it through that episode. <laughs> so she's kind of locked herself in a bathroom stall and she's fucking hearing voices and shit. She keeps telling Nosebleed to just leave her alone. And this chick will not listen. She's like trying to open the stall and shit. She's like, are you sure you're okay? Do you want something? And she's just like, go away. And at one point she grabs the, the stall door and she's gripping it so fucking hard. It's like crushing in her hand and, and she's bleeding and shit. And nosebleed still won't go away right. even after seeing this. She actually reaches in and puts her hand on her shoulder and she's like, are you okay? And fucking Ellie spins around, gives her the wolf eyes, and that finally scares nosebleed out of the bathroom. The shitty CGI wolf eyes that sideways blink. I don't, uh, the sideways blink I could, I could do without. I, maybe it's just because the other CGI is so bad in this movie, but I don't think that part's that bad. All the CGI is bad. 100%. <laughs> looks like we made that shit in paint. <laughs> yeah, not even GIMP. <laughs> GIMP is actually comparable to Photoshop. Paint is fucking paint. True. I guess I should have said, uh, actually, Pixlr isn't that bad. Anyways, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> We're fucking nerds, okay? Just deal with it. So we then jump back over to Tinsel, where uh, Jimmy has gone to fill Jake in on everything that's happened, because Ellie sure as hell isn't listening to him, and he's hoping Jake's going to listen to him. Jake's not buying it either. So frustrated, he heads home for a rare steak. And by rare, I mean the only warmth in it is from his hands when he's holding the raw steak about <laughs> to take a bite out of it. And uh, Zipper's giving him the stank eye. <laughs> 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 and he looks over and this is some of uh, Eisenberg's best acting in the movie because he just kind of stares over at Zipper and he's like, fine. And he gets out a plate <laughs> and puts the steak on the plate and he goes rustling around, presumably for some silverware. And he sees the silver pie serving thing. Speaking of Jack Frost and uh, <laughs> he grabs it and it fucking burns him. Holy shit. Shit's coming together. And Zipper's still not happy about fucking steak. Remember that. <laughs> so then Bo comes in, comes out. Bo comes to the door. <laughs> All of these things are about to happen. <laughs> and then he tries to kiss Jimmy and Jimmy's not having it. And, uh, and Jimmy's like, no, man, I'm cursed. And, and Bo's all like, I know, I know how it feels to be cursed. But now, now we know how each other feels. He's like, whoa, 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 man, I'm cursed by the mark of the beast. And, uh, He's explaining the animal attraction thing. Yeah. He's like, that's why you're so into me. Look, but, dude, I'm happy for you. You be gay. It's a good thing. Unfortunately, I got my own shit to take care of. So uh, best of luck. Yay, go gay. And I'll, uh, I'll see you. So Jimmy goes back inside and goes straight to that fucking picture frame. And when he flips it over, there's the biggest stainless steel sticker that's ever been put on a product. <laughs> just so everyone knows it's not silver. This is upsetting to him, but not as upsetting as Zipper eating his fucking steak. <laughs> I really want a steak right now. I still want fucking coconut prawn. I'm cooking a steak tomorrow night. It's happening. Get yourself some prawn. <laughs> so when Jimmy tries to take the steak back, <laughs> Zipper wolfs out. And this looks so so bad there's a couple mm -hmm. shots of it that are really good but mostly it's bad it's like cartoony bad yeah the final product in a couple of shots is a neat looking dog werewolf hybrid but well yeah so 
wolfed out zipper chases Jimmy right out the fucking front door. And Bo's like, holy shit, you really do have shit going on. (laughs) And they jump in Bo's car and they take off and they head to Club Tinsel to try to find Ellie. Meanwhile, Ellie is leaving work and she looks up on the monitor on her way out the door and sees on the news that Jenny has also been reported is killed by another animal attack, just like Becky. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) She goes to get in her car and Jake pops up and she sees the mark on his hand when he puts his hand on her fucking window and then accidentally breaks the window. And he tries to tell her that, you know, he can help. He's learned to live with this, but she's not hearing his shit and fucking takes off. Once Jimmy and Bo get to the club, Jimmy calls Ellie. And he's talking about how it's like, well, well, we came here after I got chased out, out of the house by werewolf zipper. I know you don't believe me. And then she's like, <laughs> I'd believe anything at this point. I'm like, okay, cool. So the sibs are now on the same wavelength. She also thinks that Jake is the werewolf that turned them. Like now that she's paying attention to him and we got to break the bloodline, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Okay. Shit's starting to get into focus. And then Jimmy runs right into Jake who runs right into Joni and Scott Bayo. <laughs> Most of the cast is now here, so let's get into the third act. (laughs) So Jimmy and Bo head towards the back of the club, which is this hall of mirrors, just as Ellie's coming in the front door. And she runs into Kyle, who I've all but ignored because he's (laughs) popped up a few more times in the movie. But that's because I think the audience is supposed to think that he's the red herring. That's exactly what he fucking is. (laughs) So Jimmy, Bo, Ellie, and Jake all end up converging in the hall of mirrors and Jake's like out of frame and whispering and echoey and it's dumb, but he tells Ellie that there's another werewolf that did the killings, not him, that he was born with the curse and he knows how to control it. She gives in and takes his hand and then holy shit, another werewolf bursts out of one of the mirrors. So the group scatters and Bo is struck down. What will be his fate? (laughs) Ellie runs out to a security guard for help. And he's like, calm down, calm down. What are you being chased by? <laughs> She's like a werewolf and it busts through the wall yeah. at the same time. <laughs> and it's so bad, but I'm okay with it. And of course the, the club patrons fucking escape and the club goes into lockdown. And as the last gates close in, Ellie fucking rolls back in. Cause she hasn't spotted Jimmy. And then she quickly finds Jimmy. <laughs> and then Kyle pops up. And this is when he's like full on acting like Billy and scream. And like the music's the same. The fucking angles are the same. It's, you know, Bob Weinstein made this part happen. I don't (laughs) think fucking Williamson went to the well this hard, especially with the shit that's fixing to happen. So (laughs) Jimmy and Ellie, the second they turn away at the same time from Kyle, the werewolf arm comes down from the ceiling and just yanks his ass up there like a cartoon character. And he's dead silent through the whole thing. Why? That doesn't make any fucking sense. Hammered, blacked out, drunk. Me in two days (laughs) on St. Patty's Day, okay? That's when you get killed by a werewolf without a sound. Well, when there's that much alcohol in your blood, your blood's thinner, and it begins to drip from the ceiling. (laughs) And of course, Ellie and Jimmy spot this, and then Kyle's body, mangled body, crashes to the floor in front of them. It's really odd. Their uh, werewolf senses are randomly on and off. You know, I'm going to do the kind of do the same thing to you. You did to me later on. Jake's going to say it comes and goes at first. Just thought that as I said it, you're right. <laughs> oh God, the dialogue in that kitchen. So bad. Anyways, we'll get there. So the two of them try to hide in with the other props. Cause it's like wax museum type props. And then boom, Joni pops out 
and she's half turned for a second. And she quickly explains that kinky sex with Jake gave her the curse. And now she wants Ellie dead out of pure jealousy. Okay. <laughs> so Joni slings Ellie around. And every time Jimmy gets close, she just fucking backhands him. <laughs> so and comes back to whoop it up on Ellie. <laughs> that shit's great. It happens like three times. It's so good. The part that fucks it up is the on the nose scream feeling dialogue and pacing. Poor little Sid. I mean, poor little Ellie. Like it's beat for fucking beat and it's going to get worse. But eventually the Sibs get away with the help of the dead security guards pepper spray. And Joni, I guess I should say Joni's in human form while all this is happening because we haven't got to the worst thing yet. But she grabs a vase and just dumps water on her face. And this this is like legit OC spray. That's not going to do anything for her. No, you need milk <laughs> for that, that shit. Out. Exactly. So Jake pops up again like he does through the whole fucking movie. Because <laughs> that's all he does. He just pops up. It's the flying V, man. He comes in. <laughs> and he scores the winning shot. And, uh, <laughs> okay, it's Mighty Ducks. I get it now. <laughs> Shit. I don't know any Dawson's Creek's reference, so I have to go with what I got, okay? <laughs> so, he now tries to tell Joni the same crap he was telling Ellie. Like, no, I can teach you how to control it, and I won't let you kill Ellie. I'm not going to kill her. I promise. I'm just going to rip her to shreds and let her choke on her own blood. And then maybe I'll eat her. Best line in the whole fucking movie right there. It's, it's pretty good. Um, she also says something about like she's not going to hunt rabbits and coyotes and shit out in the desert. Like she's going to be yeah, a real She's hunter. not going to eat rats and poodles. So that's that's how we know that Jake has survived in L.A as a werewolf without being caught yep. this whole time as he lives off of animals in the wild. Yeah. I think he eats a lot of homeless people too. And they just didn't go into it. <laughs> so she gets all pissy and kicks Jake away and goes back on the prowl. But first she has to go through the worst CGI transformation in a Hollywood movie. And that's what I was alluding to earlier when I was saying, look at the makeup test shots that K&B did and then showed to the CGI studios and look at what they came up with. Hide the fucking transformation. And I'll link that on our social media when Josh sends it my way, because I'm curious to see it myself. Yeah, you can. It's K&B, man. You, we know what they're capable of. Why? What? Anyways, so she's now wolfed out. So when she's not CGI from here on out, it's going to be Derek Mears in the wolf suit. So she whoops up on Ellie. It's a little bit of back and forth. And I think this is where uh, Jimmy ends up grabbing. No, no, it was earlier. <laughs> Jimmy grabs Zena's sword. <laughs> I didn't realize it was Zena's was... sword. That's even funnier. Yeah. <laughs> but eventually they end up breaking the stand that Lon Chaney's fucking silver handled pimp cane is fucking on. And Ellie shoves it down Joni's throat. Just as the cops burst in and Joni falls back and like jumps up into the rafters and shit. And uh, <laughs> the Sibs tell the cops what they're up against. Did you say werewolf? Yeah. She may have changed back to her human form. Her name's Joni. She's this uh, hyper skinny publicist. Any other description? Yeah. Um, she's much like five seven. She's she's got a bony ass and fat thighs. And bad skin. 
That is the worst fucking line in the movie. Yeah. I hate the whole part. It's like the Scooby-Doo ending, but worse. Yes. And it enrages Jody enough to burst through a window just to flip Ellie off. Why? Why? This is not the kind of movie you put a fucking werewolf flipping the bird in. It's just dumb. It does not work. I don't know how Wes Craven let this shit be in the movie, to be honest. Well, this in particular, I need to go read and see if it was in the original script. Because if it was, what the fuck? (laughs) I doubt Kevin Williamson wrote this into the fucking scripts without (laughs) being forced at gunpoint. This might have been Bob's rewrites after he walked off. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Because the ending was was what set the whole mess of rewrites into motion. But while she's busy flipping off Ellie, the cops fucking unload on her ass till she falls to the ground. Jimmy points out that they got to separate the head from the body just as Billy springs back to life for one last shot to the head. (laughs) Hope everybody got that joke. I know Jesse did. (laughs) The Sibs then retrieve Dewey from the Hall of Mirrors. He's still alive. Anybody get that joke, too? Because they go get Bo, and it is. It feels just like Scream with Billy coming back up for the shot to the forehead. Then you find out Dewey's still alive. It is weak, weak, weak sauce. Which... Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson have never been guilty of rehashing their shit like that. Like, yeah, they have their, their style and they'll reuse like certain, you know, like Kevin Williamson always develops deep characters. Unlike this film because it was butchered, (laughs) but they don't go back to the well like this. And you can tell this was not done by choice. Yeah, and you can tell this is the studio going, this is what sells, this is what you're going to do. So, now that the movie should end, we follow the siblings back home. They think it's all over, and they start cleaning up their mess of a house from what Zipper did to it when he wolfed out. They both start to slowly change, and like, they're noticing veins and places and shit. And what I should point out is, by this point, we're we're doing the, what is it, the three-night thing? After you've been bit, and then three nights later is when you actually change? Well, it's the full cycle of the moon. The full cycle of a full moon is like three days. You were thinking of the vampire legend. (laughs) So it's obvious that something's still going on. And Ellie picks up the fucking pie server while she's cleaning and it burns her. Just then Jake pops up (sighs) and he says now they can be together because she's a werewolf. He's a werewolf. He'll teach her how to control it. He created her like we didn't already fucking know this. Ellie, of course, refuses. And Jake says that there's no room in their future for her brother. And the amount of turns that his character is about to go through is just bad Mm -hmm. because it's, I love you. Then he tells her that she's too stupid and weak to understand that the powers come and go and that he's just going to have to kill her and her brother. Yeah. Like, and all this happens in a matter of minutes in the movie. It's very, very jarring and just bad. His acting is actually fine in the scene. I believe him as a bad guy turning yeah. in the scene. It just doesn't fit and it's poorly written. Yes, absolutely. So while this is going on, Jimmy starts to wolf out and goes climbing across the ceiling, which is anyways, terrible climb climbs on the ceiling, out the room and out the front of the house and then comes climbing back in the ceiling, back through the entryway and back into the kitchen. By the time he comes back in, you've got Jake actually choking Ellie out and nobody's in full blown wolf form. Just in case anybody hasn't seen this movie, we're like inklings of transformation out of uh, Jimmy and no transformation out of Jake. And 
Jimmy pounces on the back of Jake and that distracts him just enough for Ellie to be able to pick up the pie server and stab Jake in the heart. She then chops off his head with a shovel and he bursts into flames. Okay. So they then go outside feeling back to normal. And once outside, they find Brooke who was bringing lost zipper back and Bo's with her. And he says that he's told her, i.e. that he's gay. They're obviously broken up now. And Brooke lays a big old kiss on Jimmy and the three walk away into the moonlight as Ellie stays behind to clean the house. Wet fart fucking. Yep. So much unnecessary stuff. And that's it. That's the end, guys. There's a lot about the core of the movie that's good. There's a lot that's left in the movie that's good. But the stuff that's bad is so distracting and pulls away from the story, from the characters, from the the CGI, the dialogue. It just pulls away too hard for anything to be left to salvage. I love Wes. I like Williamson. I've got no personal beef with any of the actors in this movie. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I buy every word out of Judy Greer's mouth in this movie. But the movie as a whole just doesn't fucking work. And this is a movie that is a guilty pleasure of mine. And I actually enjoy watching it while knowing that it's bad at the same time. And I will honestly say a documentary about the making of this movie would be far superior and more interesting than the film itself. And somebody should do that at some point. Absolutely. And then we should also get another director since Wes has unfortunately passed to team up with Kevin Williamson and remake this movie at some point the proper way. Yeah. Or just call ILM and get what's left of the original footage and finish the original. Yeah, they could fix it. (laughs) Something interesting. I noticed when I gave this movie a, a quick rewatch yesterday to get it fresh before we recorded. I thought that when the werewolf attacked Shannon Elizabeth and all of them and pulled the train of them through the woods out of the car at the open and seen that it was a different color fur than the werewolf of the rest of the movie, which would make sense because it would have been Jake that did it and not Judy Greer. But I didn't have time to go back and rewind it one more time just to confirm it. But I'm fairly certain the werewolf had a different color fur and I'm thankful they at least thought to do that to make the ending mostly makes sense because they did a piss poor job of explaining that it wasn't actually Joni's character that bit them all to begin with. Yeah. It's the one quick line out of Jake. And the thing is, if you think about what Zella says, it's, it's, you know, you got to find the original creator and, you know, kill it to break the bloodline and break the curse. When Jake first says that he's born with it uh, outside of her work, it should all click right then that it doesn't matter who else is running around as a werewolf. If this guy's saying he's born with it, kill him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're going to, you're, you're going to do the most help by killing him. So there's no, there's no waiting for that, that payoff of, Oh, now I'm a bad guy. It, I slightly disagree there. Something that got brought up from David when we were watching lost boys the other night was that he likes the vampire subgenre because you can use the same base set of rules, but slightly modify some of the other rules and it can make each movie different and apply. And werewolf films have traditionally gone that way as well. Like as far as what happens, what works. And I've seen other films and read other stories where werewolves where you just have to kill or eat the heart in some cases of the wolf that bit you, not necessarily the original wolf. So that part could go either way, but true. With all the broken links in this movie, it's hard to forgive anything. Yeah. 
Wow. Um, I, of course, money, I think when all was said and done, they spent like $40 million making this, and it made like 19 or something. Yeah, just because they had to reshoot it so many times. And it sucks because it is not a good example of Wes Craven or Kevin Williamson's work. And... Or Rick Baker or yeah. K&B. And it's odd because at the same time, it feels like a Wes Craven and a Kevin Williamson movie. Like you can feel it in parts of it. And then other times it's just a nonsensical film. And that's what's weird. It's like being on fucking ketamine. It's like you float in and out of, hey, I'm in a Kevin and Williamson movie. And then you get pulled in another direction and you're like, where am I? And it, it just floats back and forth. It never, it never gets grounded. I hate that based off of franchises and subgenres that we covered, that this was one of the Kevin Williamson movies we had to do to try to cover him as a screenplay writer. But we've wanted to cover this movie for a while. It almost came up in werewolves. It almost came up in Wes Craven and it was its time. And it just really kind of goes to show as we went through his backstory at the beginning, his style and his stamp that you get on things and then how you get to this movie. And there's only, like a, a a fraction or a shadow of its former self still still there. Yep. And I know other people have covered this movie and said it, and some people have covered this movie and totally ignored it. Don't be mad at Williamson for how this movie went. You know, be mad at the studio. Read the original script yeah. or at least read the comparison. It's it's his writing. It's much better. And you can see, like you said, shadows of that in the movie, but unfortunately by the time it was all said and done. That's all we had left. And at least we can find the original script on the internet to read in this case. And we get to look forward to what we might get next out of him. Do you think you see him branching off into some other direction or is he going to stay stuck with character, a character piece in a horror setting just because that's his mojo? What do you think? I think the character piece in a horror setting is his thing because even outside of the horror setting, the character piece is something that he focuses on. And even with the faculty, they had the original two writers did their version of the movie and Miramax dimension didn't like where they went, which that would have been the Weinstein still. Right. Didn't they have something to do with that? Yeah. So they got Kevin Williamson in there to flesh out the characters and make it hip as they said, right. Cause that's kind of his thing. (laughs) And that is a strength of his and, and, Obviously, he went out the gate swinging hard with Scream being a meta horror film. That wasn't something that had been done before. And it's really hard for him to do that again without it looking like a Scream ripoff. But we could see with the faculty that he can write strong characters without doing that. And I would love to see him get to do some more films with uh, some other current heavy hitter directors. Team him up with James Wan. That'd be fucking awesome. Why doesn't Jason Blum call him and, and just attach him to something with, with one of his directors? I think something really awesome could come out of it. And I kind of alluded to this earlier, but Kevin Williamson is like the rock star famous screenplay writer of horror movies. You can't really name anyone else that wasn't also the director of the film. And... I hope we get to see more of him, but I feel like at this point in his career, he might start stepping more into that producer category. Yeah. Which he's produced quite a bit of shit, including most of the movies we've ever mentioned that he wrote, as well as the shows. So we'll just have to see. I mean, it'll be interesting to see the new Scream movie where he's the producer, like the head producer, as far as I understand, and not a writer or anything. 
Yeah, we'll have to see how it goes, and hopefully, it will. Uh, we'll get him back into the uh, the genre proper and see where he can go. Well, that's it for the Kevin Williamson episode. So you'll have to tune in on the next episode where we cover a prolific director that's really left their mark on the industry. That's what my girlfriend would look like with that skin. Yeah, yeah. As usual, guys, thanks for downloading the show and spreading the word. Please do not forget to rate and review us online. And please, please send us comments, questions, and suggestions to our email, sbspodcast at gmail.com. We would also love it if you could follow our Twitter and Instagram, both at sbspodcast. This might motivate us to use them more. See you guys on the next one. Thanks for listening. Let's get the fuck out of here.